food all right? Great, sir. Great. Try the wine. Thank you, sir. Okay, everyone shut up because I got a lot to cover and you need to listen up. Seminars, April 1st through the 3rd with a few spots left. That is planned to sell out, so don't delay if you're on the fence. After that, June 3rd through the 5th, then August 12th through the 14th. For camps coming up, we have self-sufficient lifter camps on March 19th and May 14th, both those in Wichita Falls, both those covering the squat, the press, the deadlift, how to film yourself, and how to diagnose your own technique. Then, of course, our first ever lift shoot fight camp. That's a two-day camp on April 30th to May 1st in Wichita Falls covering lifting, shooting, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe some breakdance fighting. Then a squat camp in Mobile, Alabama on March 19th. We've added some squat and deadlift camps to the list, but let's go through what we got left. March 20th, Austin, Texas at Starting Strength Austin. March 26th in Central Connecticut at Anino Strength and Conditioning. April 9th in Cincinnati with two spots left at the time of this recording at Starting Strength Cincinnati. Then we've added a UK camp up in Manchester on April 30th. Then May 21st, back to Boston for you mass holes at Starting Strength Boston. Couple three lift camps still on the list, squat, bench, and deadlift, both of those. April 24th in Baltimore at 5x3 training, and then April 30th in Orange County at the Strength Co. Then finally, the Seoul Brothers in Seoul, South Korea, the better of the two Koreas, on May 1st are putting on a four lift camp, the squat, the press, the deadlift, and the power clean. There's also a bunch of meets on the list, so check that amount. I'm not going to read them all off, but you can guarantee that at least more than five or six are in Omaha. Congratulations to Starting Strength Chicago for getting open recently. They are our latest gym to open. We still got more to go, more on the list. If you're interested in finding out what's coming up, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And we can't talk about Starting Strength Gyms without talking about our good friend Ray Gillenwater. Ray has told me recently in an excited voice that he is, in fact, going back into the kickboxing arena to compete after a long hiatus. But because Everything is a social construct now and nothing really matters. He's going to identify as a 12-year-old and compete in the preteen category. So, good luck to Ray Gillenwater of Starting Strength Gyms. And as usual, for more information on anything else that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Thank you, Mark Wolf. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We have a interesting show for you this week and uh <clears throat> something i think you'll you'll find fascinating especially if you're a guy we're going to talk about b-52s and the cold war with our friend scott davison but first as usual comments, comments from, from the, the haters. haters all right now this is going to be specifically in response to the Olympic weightlifting show that we uh, just recently ran. Zach T. Lander says, please, for the love of God, put this on your comments from the haters segment this week. I almost left it out just because he asked to be on. 
but I think it's I think this is funny. I would like to, a list of all the lifters in the past ten years you have coached at any meet in weightlifting and their totals. And while we're at it, let's do powerlifting too. You piss and moan about the current state of American weightlifting as if you haven't haven't had the ability to come in and actually do something about it. You got your level one in 89, for God's sakes. There is no coach in American weightlifting that doesn't have their athletes pull, squat, and press. <laughs> you haven't many times I've heard that. There is no coach that doesn't actively try to develop strength in their lifter. What the fuck am I missing here? You, sir, are missing the facts and the video that explains all this shit. That's what you're missing. Oh, God. And here's Rusty. All right, here's a comment from Travis C. Rusty never drops the soap. I put it down, <laughs> Rusty never drops the soap. I want Ripito to coach me, but I'm not a female. It says, It's in some other script. I can't read the alphabet. It doesn't look like Cyrillic. You think that's Cyrillic? Maybe Greek? I don't have any idea what what no, this is. Like no, it's not it's not Greek. It's not Greek. Is it Russian? I don't think so. Unless it's some weird font it's displayed in. Yeah. Because I only coach females. Okay. All right, this is this is especially interesting. French Bulldog says, Somebody tell me what is the point of doing this crap? Self gratification. Seems rather vain and self-centered. I get that the teacher makes money, but all the students are guaranteed to have joint problems later in life. There is no point. Just a bunch of foolish people with blinders on. French Bulldog 1 makes that insightful observation. All right. And finally, why are Mark's nipples no longer hard? <laughs> I cannot trust this man now. Fucking infuriating. I'm getting married tomorrow, and now I seriously doubt I'll be able to consummate the marriage. <laughs> Fuck you, Ripito, you sick fuck. <laughs> we really upset Perry Migus. Congratulations on the marriage. Yes. Congratulations, Perry. And those are comments, comments from, the, from haters. the haters. All right, Scotty. Thanks for coming in. Sure. You and I have been buddies for, what, 20, 25 years? It's 20 years anyway. Something yeah. like that. We got, got to know each other through politics and stuff. Everybody I know is a libertarian, I think. Or is headed in that direction, one way or another. And uh, at one time, Scott used to write a column for our little paper that's somehow still clinging to life here, the Wichita Falls Times Record News. Uh, those guys run like one original article a day. They finally, I think they primarily serve as a, have you looked at the paper? No, I didn't. since they fired me, I haven't bothered looking at it. I haven't read it in years. Uh Picked it up in an office one day, and it appeared that it's wire stories and uh, 
And they may have one person in the office down there. Yeah, that's what it seems like. When I look yeah, at it, it yeah. seems like one person's working down there. And, uh, you know, they write these stories that are where each sentence is a paragraph. Right, right. Modern journalism. Each sentence is its own paragraph because you're too stupid to read a multi-sentence paragraph. Have y'all noticed the tendency for that? Yeah, it's a, it's now nah, it's you know I think the bigger papers, uh, the bigger papers tend to write more in like actual paragraphs, but they're all lying to you, so it doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't really make any difference. So, Scotty is here, and uh, let's I'm going to let him introduce himself to you. Uh, Scott has got the best stories on earth and uh, he was a B-52 pilot back during the Cold War and uh, you guys are in for a treat so Scott tell us well what do you want to know when when did you go into the service I I got commissioned uh, out of the University of Minnesota in 1974 Mm -hmm. so I was picked up on a pilot scholarship program during the Vietnam War and there needed pilots and if you could uh pass a physical that was no draft physical it was a honest to god physical and score a certain level on written tests mm-hmm. then they would pay for your college so great deal i said yeah that's better than slugging it through a, um, a rice paddy with an m16 which is which know, is where you'd have been yeah, yeah. yeah. right so um uh so i got commissioned in 74 and uh, i moved to mississippi uh my first duty station was Keesler Air Force Base for schools. The, 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 but the program, had, the idea is that the program had started. Right. I started my senior in high school in 69. Yeah. That's, I was like, so, so you I committed was, I was to worried, the program. Yeah. I had actually enlisted as a reserve E1 in the spring of 70. Before I was even oh, so yeah, right, right, in the middle of the, right in the middle of the deal. Okay. Yeah. I got it. Yeah, that, was, got that was the hammer they held over you in college. Right. If your grades fell, then they sent you off to Lackland as an E1 mm-hmm. basic trainee. Right. So you had to you had to be enlisted while you were in college. Right. So the carriage right. was a I reserve see. E1. Right. I see. So so you entered flight school in 74. Actually started in 75, early 75. Early there was 70. a delay cuz Vietnam was all winding down. Right. There's delay getting us started and everything. Mm-hmm. And some some guys uh, didn't go at all. Some right. guys were told you had a free education, see ya. Wow. Some some of those guys were thrilled, you know. Right. Cuz they were just they joined ROTC to Hoping the war would be over before they graduated, right. basically. And, they and got it was. <laughs> and they got they right. Yeah. yeah. So so I started pilot training in February of 75 at Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Pilot training lasted uh, 54 weeks, I think was what it was. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, because of uh, the war winding down, it was uh, pretty brutal. They washed out half the class. Um, oh, God. Oh, my. Yeah, it was... Uh, the first uh, six months, it seemed like somebody was leaving every day. So know? it was a higher quality group of graduates at that point. Well, I like to think so. Standards were <laughs> standards had been raised by the supply yeah. and demand curve. Yeah, air sickness washed out a bunch of guys. Yeah, there was just you know um, nowadays uh, they cure air sickness. Right, got about ninety five percent cure rate on it. Um, in those days, they just used it as a reason to get rid of you. Right, they just wanted to thin it out anyway. Right. We had uh, guys from Venezuela in the class and guys from Denmark in the class. A lot of people don't know that, but the U.S. Air Force trains pilots from people all over the world. Not just NATO. 
Right. Not just NATO. NATO. The program here, which we'll get to later, I guess, right. is a very unique program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the other pilot training bases, countries just write a check to the American taxpayers and say, give us back an American trained pilot. Right. Here at NGEP, they have, all the countries have input into the syllabus. And everything. So right. it's a completely different thing. But the, um, the Danes were at the top of the class. They showed up with uh, 100 hours and some and other jets before they even started. So they were ahead of everybody. Uh, the Venezuelans, uh, were, they were like the Americans. Some were real good, some weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they were all politically favorable at the time. I think and they, they knew people, and that's why they were there, I think. But the guy I shared a table with for the whole year was a Venezuelan, a guy named uh, Gabino Blanco. The uh, sad thing is the class has had several reunions. Um, the Venezuelans have all disappeared. None of them have ever had a Facebook account, never had an email disappeared. address. Disappeared. I mean, literally disappeared. Dis- went away. And, and I'm afraid that after the Socialist Revolution down there that uh, they're not with us anymore. I don't know that. I'm just saying we've never very well be. Yeah, we've never had any contact with any of them. Right. So, um, so I graduated in '76, then the bicentennial year, Mm -hmm. and I had to sit at Columbus for some months because of the way the funding worked for follow-on schools. Because when you finish pilot training, what you have is a pair of pilot wings and nothing else. You're still no good to anybody. Right. So you start by going to survival schools. There was a water survival school, mountain survival school, uh, and then eventually in case you get shot down, right. Yeah, right. in different different climates and stuff. Uh, there was a, there was POW resistance training where they taught you how to resist interrogations and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, then I finally got to Castle Air Force Base, California, to start training as a co-pilot in the B-52. So when did you receive the assignment to the B-52? Uh, Is it, does that come during pilot training? It comes right at, at the just end? before graduation. Right. So they tell you what kind of plane graduation. you're going right. to fly. You put in about about four months before graduation, you put in a dream sheet. This is what I'd like to do. Right. And uh, they'll pay some attention to it, but they tell you from the beginning the needs of the Air Force, so it determines what your assignment's going to be. Right. So what, did, what was on your dream sheet? I actually, uh, uh, the one thing I knew is I didn't want to fly fighters. Really? Which, yeah, everybody else wanted to fly I, fighters. That kind of made you unusual. Oh, it? yeah, very, yeah. I, um, they kept bringing in uh, fighter pilots to impress us, and I, I found them so universally obnoxious that I. <laughs> and it's out now. I got a lot of very good friends that are fighter pilots now, so yeah. <laughs> that was then, guys. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I know the type. Plus, having the form- lived in Wichita Falls all these yeah. years, I. Yeah. Plus, fl- the formation flying wasn't a lot of fun yeah. for me. I could do right. it. I passed the check right, but it wasn't. Everybody else talked how much fun they were having, right? And I just wasn't having all that much fun in formation. And if you fly fighters, you got to fly in formation. A, a single right. fighter in combat's dead meat. So, so put that all together. I said I still want combat airplanes. So what that meant in 1976 was AC-130s or B-52s. Right. That's it. And the AC-130s, they got most of their co-pilots out of the C-130 world, so they're already right. trained how to fly the airplane. What is the AC-130? That's a, a gunship. Still using them. Uh, oh yeah! All right, uh, it's an that's awesome, the, awesome right. weapon. Let's, the the, the side mounted right. gun. Yeah, yeah. I got machine guns and right. cannon mounted up the side, right. and with no, with modern technology, they that, can that, snipe that, with. Didn't them. that concept start in Vietnam? It did with a C forty seven. Exactly. Yeah. Fitted with some kind of hairy ass uh, cannon of some sort. Yeah, it had. Uh, yeah. I, I worked for a guy who flew those in Vietnam. Uh, uh, his had three seven point six two miniguns. Uh, the, you know, um, Vulcan Gatling gun. Gatling gun, rotating. And then it had a 75-millimeter howitzer, 
Okay. <laughs> On he he said they'd shoot that house and that whole plane would go sideways. <laughs> yeah. Got him, man. A howitzer on an airplane. That's an amazing yeah, It was pilot. a deadly weapon, too. Oh, yeah. And he said the thermal sights on it were they're very crude. And he said uh, you couldn't really tell the difference between an elephant and a truck. So <laughs> he, he said that one of the things you do, because, of course, they exclusively flew at night. He says if right. the sights found those things, he says you'd, you'd fire around out of that 75 down there. And if they moved immediately, then there were elephants. The, <laughs> then you left them alone. Right. And right. the truck drivers learned. They didn't know how, but they knew that we were finding those trucks in the dark. So as yeah. soon as they stop them, they'd go somewhere else and leave the truck alone. Right. So, so it would just stand there and, and yeah. not move. I wonder how many elephants got killed. Yeah, he's, he laughed about that. He said, <laughs> he said I hope the pearly gates aren't guarded by elephants. Because sooner or later, you kill somebody. <laughs> You're going to kill an elephant or two. Oh, God. So the B-52 was your other option. Right. 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 And uh, I, I did a little research, and I found out there was three models still on duty at the time, uh, the D model, the G model, and the H model. And the H model had fan jets. It was the last one produced. Right. And so I asked for those to uh, Grand Forks Air Force Base, North Dakota. So let's talk about the B-52 a little bit. What it, This is a, it, an incredibly interesting airplane. Uh those of you people that are listening to us now, we get to talk about airplanes. I One of my favorite things to do is just get on Wikipedia and look at airplanes. And I can do that for two hours. I can just read about airplanes for two hours. And I don't know why it fascinates me so much, but uh, Wikipedia is a good resource for, for airplane stuff. And the B-52, uh, the first airframes were produced in... 1952. The very first flight was 52. 1952. But they, they started entering service and, in 55. Right. They they tested the airplane off the ground at Boeing in 1952. Right. And it is still in service today. It is. The H models are all that's left. And uh, so that is, what, 70 years? Yep. Coming up on 70 years? It's going to end up being in service for... 85, 90 years before they retire. That's just, there's not another airplane. Nothing comes close to it. I mean, that is even approached it. Most of these things have a lifespan of seven or eight years. Military planes, and, yeah, if you're lucky. Seven you or know, eight years. Seven or eight years, and the, B, the B-52 is almost 70 years old. And is that because the original design was just so damn good? That's part of it. Uh, plus, they've uh, never really asked for a replacement. Uh, rep- uh, they, they what else to... could do that mission? Well, that's the, that's the problem. As well as what we've got right now. Yeah, historically, what matters in a bomber is range and payload. Right. That's what matters. Right. And the Air Force has never asked for more range and payload. They, they wanted the right. B-1, which for speed and maneuverability, right. it's a remarkably fast and maneuverable airplane for a plane its size. But it doesn't, in actual combat, carry more, more weight. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's very range limited. It takes two times, three times the tanker support. So they're going to retire the B-1s long before they retire the B-52s. Mm-hmm. And the same with the B-2s. Nobody knows exactly when they're going to retire. Um, but, but they won't last 70 years. No way. No way. And <laughs> no that stealth technology, work. which I don't know anything about it, all I know is it's fragile. They, right. uh, they can't fly those things on every training sort of I mean, They basically only fly combat missions on them. They, oh, really? They, they, there's some exceptions. Just wears the airplane out? Yeah, and I don't understand what it is about it that wears out, right. but, it, but it does. It's interesting. B-52s, on the other hand, I, what, what do you think the oldest B-52 airframe in the air right now is? 
When was when uh, would probably nineteen sixty? Probably. I'm off the top of my head. Nineteen sixty. Yeah. They were building H models in nineteen sixty. In fact, the last one delivered was delivered, if I remember right, in early sixty one, and we wow. had that we had that airplane up at Grand Forks while it was up there. The last manufactured yeah. by Boeing. Yeah, we also in had the one that flew had the famous flight without a tail, where they uh, they lent a, a B fifty two to NASA. Right? And NASA was going to do, I think it was mountain wave turbulence research with it, I think is what it was. So they instrumented the plane all up, flew it in the mountain, and I think their first encounter, it knocked the vertical stabilizer and rudder off, just broke it off like a toy. And, <laughs> the, the, the wind? Yeah, the, 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 the side loads. Yeah, really? Just ripped it off. There's a lot yeah. of photos you get online you see about it. Um, they left a little stub of the vertical stabilizer there, but they lowered the aft landing gear to provide a little stability. And they, they went looking for a place where the wind was down the runway. And if I remember right, they went back and landed at Edwards, where they took off from in California, if I remember right. But They so, got all the way back there yeah. without a vertical impact. Only airplane ever built could fly like that. It's an amazingly tough airplane. Uh, Boeing, Boeing just builds good airplanes, mm-hmm. despite Apparently. their current problems right Apparently. now. Apparently. They, they have in the past. Yeah. Uh, 1961, they took delivery of the, that's the newest B-52 airframe. I think it was 61, yes. That is just absolutely amazing. And you and I were talking the other day about the difference between the G and the H model. Uh-huh. And and apparently there was a big upgrade between G and H. So you got well, A, B, C, D. Well, the, the big up. Was E a designation? Oh, yes. Yeah. E's, E model. They had A through, A through H. H. Right. Uh, the real big change was from the F to the G. F to G. Right. That was a total redesign of the airplane. All right. All right. It, 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 the external layout looks generally similar. Right. Uh, somebody who's got time looking at them can tell right at it with a glance. So all those early ones, we started calling them tall tails because right. the, the vertical stab was much, it was 10 or 12 feet taller and more mm. point, pointed looking. Right. So the G model, externally, the G model is easy to identify because it's, by comparison, it looks like the top of the vertical stabilizer has been cut off of it, mm-hmm. uh, if you're used to looking at it. And then the H model is is basically a G model with fan jets and a different tail gun initially. Right. No, don't have any guns on them anymore. But uh, initially, it was built with a 20-millimeter Gatling uh, gun in the tail. And every right. other B-52 had 450 caliber machine gun. So the, the basic upgrade of this thing was that uh, the G is the wings are wet. Yes, the, the, the wings the, are fuel the, tanks. The, this is a fascinating design concept, isn't it? That the, the 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 wings of an F model, a G model B fifty two are do not contain fuel tanks. They are fuel tanks. Yeah, and for, for practical purposes, we we say there's tanks in them. You know, right? For, for the copot to handle the fuel, we break it up into tanks right but if, but if you have a leak on a g or an h model you have structural damage if you're leaking fuel you have damage to the structure and then the top oh because the tank itself is loaded aerodynamically because it's the wing right right yeah and for that reason there's always you never ever empty a b-52 out because the fuel's part of the structure of it um and then the top oh one fourth or so of the fuselage for almost its entire length is also fuel Right. So it's a, it's a fuel truck. Right. Max gross weight when I flew them was four hundred eighty-eight thousand pounds peacetime, and over three hundred thousand of that could be fuel. So, right. and that's that's and that's 
irrespective of bomb payload, or is that? Well, no, that would depend. You, you, if you fully load it up with sixty-five or seventy thousand pounds of fuel, you or of bombs, you may not be able to fill up the fuel tanks. Ah, so four eighty was the max. Four eighty-eight was the max peacetime weight. Yeah, max gross weight at takeoff, peacetime. Peacetime. And we sat on yeah. alert with uh, five hundred thousand, and when they came out with the external cruise missiles, we sat on alert with I want to say it was five hundred twenty thousand pounds gross weight. So you could get airborne at five hundred twenty thousand. Yes, yes, you could, unless it was real, real hot, you know, or you had a tailwind that you couldn't avoid, something like right. that. But yeah, it would it would fly, but I tell you, it it flew heavy. <laughs> it was already it's already the hardest fly airplane ever built and well you, you got heavy you have told me before that it's that flying a b-52 is like flying a building oh yeah it's like sitting on your front porch and flying your house <laughs> yeah, there was what was the old i can't remember that you used to say it has it has uh 152 miles of wiring in it it weighs more than 10 locomotives and can deliver more than 60 box cars and it flies like 10 locomotives pulling 60 boxcars <laughs> at the end of 120 miles of wire. Yeah. So, it's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, I learned on my, what, what in the Air Force we call a dollar ride. Your first ride in any airplane that you're going to fly is called a dollar ride. And I learned on my dollar ride, which was five and a half hours long, that nothing I learned for a year of pilot training about stick rudder and throttle was going to help me in this airplane. <laughs> it just doesn't behave like other airplanes. It's does. not the same thing. It's not at all. <laughs> not at all. Had to relearn everything. So the only thing I learned at pilot training I was going to use was instrument procedures because they always apply to everybody. Right. So, but as far as how to fly, how to manipulate controls on an airplane, nah, pilot training didn't teach me anything I needed in the B-53. Right. Basic laws of aerodynamics maybe, but. Well, this is just, you know, I don't, those of us civilians that have had no experience with this, but, but have had a fascination for this kind of hardware for a long time. The B-52 is a, there's nothing that's ever been able to do that mission. The damn thing can drop bombs on your ass from 30,000 feet or from 500 feet. Yep. Or less. Or less. (laughs) Imagine flying uh, a building 500 feet, 400 feet above the ground. So there's a wide variety of missions this thing was suitable for. What's the highest uh, a bomb can be dropped? Is that um, still classified? No. Um, During Desert Storm, our our unit routinely bombed from 41,000 feet. Dropped the payload from 41,000 feet. Yep. And what is the lowest that you have ever dropped payload i've i've dropped 108 500 pound bombs from 200 feet one wingspan for us 200 feet yeah at 390 knots and the bomb explosion what's the velocity you you have to have some some ground speed there to get away from oh you always drop what we call high drags from that from the low altitude right so there's a drag device on each bomb that makes sure that it falls behind you before it goes off but inevitably, a couple of those will do what we call going slick, and that those high drag devices won't deploy. Mm-hmm. And so when you, it was always disconcerting to look at any videotape because there'd be one or two of those bombs would skip off the ground and go halfway back up to the plane. To 100 feet. Couple, and, yeah, before they finally detonated. And, right. And first time I looked at that, I thought, well, I didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> that was. So would, it, would that damage the aircraft? Not usually, no. 
Not usually. It would it would be far enough behind. What's you. your ground speed in a in a situation like uh, that? Norm, bomber airspeed is normally three hundred ninety knots, so four hundred twenty five. two hundred feet off the deck. Oh yeah, or less. Some of the some of the routes had no minimum altitude at all. I got I got discovered by an F fifteen one time on a red flag mission because we were kicking up dust on the desert floor. That's how he saw us. Wow. And that's when I realized you can go too low. <laughs> that was, that uh, didn't didn't so help. So you're me. like half a wingspan off of the oh, ground. Oh yeah, yeah. That gets scary. You can't well, make you any can't mistakes. Sneeze. No. You can't do anything. Can't. No. Yeah, that's, that's why just, you didn't routinely just, do that. It's just amazing. Can you imagine being on the ground underneath a B-52 flying over your head at 100 feet? What in the hell? Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've crossed an interstate highway or something, you know, at three or 400 feet above ground level and often wondered what those people in the cars. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> And Can you imagine having, because you're not going to see it. No. You're driving down a highway, you're looking ahead, and all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, God. Oh my. It must be frightening. I don't know. Oh, I bet it is. It, but I, I'll bet it is, man. I've been on the base when we, see, back in the late 80s, somebody decided we weren't getting enough live releases of actual weapons coming off the airplane because there wasn't that many, very many places you could drop a lot of bombs in the U.S. And right. So like um, Nevada, poor old Nevada. Yeah, the, there's a place called Utah Test Range outside of Salt Lake City. So that's where I dropped the. I wonder how much, how many pounds of explosives have been dropped on oh, that damn thing. Incalculable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we uh, we came up with a program in the '80s to uh, we, the pilots quickly called it the bomb your own base program because <laughs> they they decided we were going to drop what we call shapes or blivets of phony bombs. They're they're just five or six feet long and they're supposed to or they're not even that they're three or four feet long. And evidently, they're supposed to mimic the aerodynamic qualities of a conventional bomb. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went, went out in between the runway and the long parallel taxiways, and we mowed a bullseye in the grass. And then somebody at SAC headquarters went to the FAA and said, we'd like permission to fly 390 knots uh, down through our base and drop a, a bomb on it. And, uh, and I'm sure the FAA said no. And I'm sure that somebody at SAC said we're going to do it anyway. Because well, we did well, it. Because you know? we're SAC and we're, gonna, we're just going to do it. We well. are the Strategic Air Command. And it's, in fact, it's already been done. <laughs> so we did that. We bombed our own bases for a while to get. Oh, By today's safety standards, they'd never let you do anything like that anymore. So Probably the FAA, not. The FAA governs all airspace, even military airspace? All airspace in 48 contiguous states. They, yes. Now, the military has airspace set aside for their use, okay? Um, and there's different types. For instance, pilot training occurs in what's, what's called a military operating area, or MOA. And it's not technically restricted from other airplanes. Anybody can fly through there that's otherwise legal to be, be there. When I was a student, pilot training areas were restricted from other people, but that changed. Politics changed that. Okay? So there's a, there's a hilarious, these are NGEP classes here that a lot of them will put out a graduation tape on YouTube. And I was, I was watching one here about a year ago, and they, they had a tape of air traffic control. And there was a civilian pilot asked for permission to enter the, the Westover military operating area out west of here. And the controller's answer was, well, I can't keep you out of there, he says, but uh, what's in there is unqualified pilots and supersonic jets. Your choice. <laughs> <laughs> Your choice. <laughs> Well, 
That's <laughs> it's interesting. Oh, God. But, yeah, they govern the airspace so, around airports, too. There's, you know, Class A, B, and C airspace, and there's rules about how fast you can operate and what equipment you got to have. And the Bombing Base Program violated all that. We just just, just did it anyway. <laughs> it just, Cold War SAC yeah, could do Needed to, needed to be wanted. done, yeah. that sort of thing. What's uh, so? Uh, what is? What are the dimensions? Just as a little aside here, of a of a five hundred pound conventional bomb. Um, How big are those damn things? Like this. Table? A Mark eighty two is the common one. They're fairly streamlined. They're designed for external carriage on fighters, although we carried them internally and externally. But they're yeah, Mark eighty two is the length of this table, right? And is I don't know three feet diameter, something right. like that, and pretty streamlined looking, right? For the most part shiny. Pointy. Yeah, usually they're olive drab, flat olive oh, drab right. colored, usually. Okay. Um, we also dropped a lot of M117s, which are bigger in diameter. Those are those are 750-pounders instead of 500-pounders. Right. That's a general pers- purpose explosive mm-hmm. just for, you know, buildings and people. Right, and then they've got all kinds of other vicious little devices that drop oh, yes. fleshettes and yeah, anti personnel things, that cluster just, bomb units that just scare the rat fuck out of everybody that's ever even heard of these names. Yeah, a lot things. of that stuff we don't use anymore. Sign treaties and too stuff. Mean. Yeah, yeah, it's too mean. Yeah, it's too mean. Too mean. We dropped a lot oh. of CBUs during uh, Desert Storm. CBUs, cluster bomb units. They, it looks like a regular bomb basically, and when it falls out, it opens up, and hundreds of little tennis ball sized bomblets come out. Right. Uh, each of which is embedded with the BBs and has veins to make it rotate. And they'll, they'll detonate just above the ground. And it's, it's devastating unless you're behind armor because it'll, it'll cut you apart from all directions at once. It just literally turns flesh into hand. It's hammer. like being in front of the world's largest shotgun. Exactly. Yep. Oh, God. Oh, man. But I think, we're, I think we've signed something where we're not going to use CPUs anymore. I think. I'm not sure. Well, I guess those are terribly effective anti-personnel devices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you have to be behind armor, or they're they're going to get you. The uh, they're, they're, the elite Republican, Republican guard probably guard. got treated to a couple of doses of, of CBUs. Right? Yeah, we we knew the ground war was about to start because all the B fifty two targets changed to carpet bombing along the border, and that that's your that's your sign that it's going to be a couple of days and we're, we're we're coming after you. Right, and that's why these guys were surrendering to drones or anything else they could. <laughs> just if you survive, you're just you're not a soldier anymore after a couple of days of that. Just it'll shatter your bladder. It, you know, I mean, it's now, it's just terrifying. Carpet bombing is an interesting process. Yes, you just try to cover, get as many bombs as you can in as few square feet as you can. Just churn the earth. Yep. So, what does it look like after an area has been? carpet bombs. moonscaped you know just, just dirt just nothing but craters just yeah. dirt and bomb craters you see that you've seen the videos from vietnam the, the, the b-52s did a lot of carpet bombing there right and uh it was it's terribly effective the, the after the war the north of me said it was the thing they feared more than anything was a b-52 raid because there's nothing they could do about it they didn't know it was coming <clears throat> and if you're in the target box nothing survives and nothing it, it, not a tree not a rat blades of grass don't survive cockroaches don't yeah. survive so how many how many airplanes would this would a raid like that involve? Usually, they, in Vietnam, they use three ships a lot. They fly a three ship V formation, and then each of those guys would have 108 500 pound bombs. So it would take an area uh, half a mile wide, three quarters of a mile long, something like that, and just kill everything in it. Just 324 bombs 
in an area. Yep, less than a mile long. Less yeah. than a mile long and half a mile wide. Yep, you can see videos of it uh, of those, those strikes happening in the jungle, and the and the, the you know the common wisdom at the time was well they're just bombing jungle, but no there was targets down there there were supply lines supply you know, depots. Just bomb the jungle there, there, that'd there was, be wasteful, wouldn't it? Yeah, they they did this they carpet <clears throat> bombed right outside the wire at Quezon from with B fifty twos. We'll never know how many of the North Vietnamese regulars were killed with those. Because they, they, that was the whole point of Quezon, was to force them to bring their troops into a fixed-place battle. Right. Because uh, if they didn't, the artillery base of Quezon was going to cut the supply lines. So it worked. The North Vietnamese had to do this, and we, the B-52 showed up and just killed them in huge, huge numbers. We'll never know how many. Amazing. Yeah, it's a devastating weapon. There's, I, right. think, I think it was— um, those are 500-pound bombs. That you you typically, yes. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> I think it was, I may be misquoting, I think it was Napoleon who was asked about artillery and said, uh, do you go for quantity or quality? And he said, you always go for quality, remembering that quantity has a quality. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Army, Army understands that. Yeah. The Army does. So the Army, the Marine Corps understands that. Everybody yeah. operates artillery understands oh, yeah. that. that Everybody on the ground really, really is upset when shit drops out of the sky and blows you to yeah, seven I, or eight pieces. I read a statistic once that in World War II, something like 70% of the casualties were indirect fire casualties, meaning nobody had them in their sights. They lobbed a bomb at them, they, they dropped artillery shell on them, and, and it caused way more than half the casualties. Wow. Indirect fire. Not a sniper round, but a right. mortar artillery that kind bomb of, that's that kind of thing yeah right well it's so doing it from 41,000 feet with hundreds of pounds is, it's devastating well and there's another very important aspect of the B52 nuclear weapons now these are fascinating uh, there is a movie called the atomic bomb movie that you can buy on Amazon. It's still available on DVD, and it's the footage of, uh, oh, 40 or 50 nuclear weapons tests uh, from the, the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it's, it's a fascinating look at the power of these ridiculous devices. And... Uh, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the Strategic Air Command's mission was to be able to destroy all life on the planet. Essentially. And, and to also, at the same time, guarantee that it would never be done accidentally, right? So nuclear weapons were, were the arsenal. Oh, yeah. At, at the time when, when uh, you used conventional weapons in the Persian Gulf War, but you also flew nukes around. Didn't fly them around. That rarely but, happened in a, in a bomber. Right. So tell us about this. Well, hmm. you, you would sit on alert. And that, that was the primary job of bomber crews and tanker crews during, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Which, like you mentioned earlier, there's a whole generation raised after that ended. That knows nothing about it. Hasn't right. seen it. But B-52s and KC-135s were purchased for that one purpose, to cross the globe and drop nukes on the bad guys. When I was little... Uh, we lived probably, oh, I'd say five miles from Shepherd. 
I could get up on my on top of the roof. I had a tree out in front of the house that I'd climb up and get up on top of the roof. And I still remember uh, they apparently would would fire the engines up on a regular basis. Oh yeah, out there. And I could get up on top of the roof, and I could see the top of the vertical empennage on these aircraft as they were sitting out there on the runway on the north side of Shepard. You could see those things from the roof of the house. Sure, they were on alert. They're on nuclear alert out there. And I guess that, you know, those were probably the tall towers. Tall tails. Tall tails. I wouldn't. I don't know. I think they did. This would have been about nineteen sixty. Oh, four, five, somewhere in it there. Could have been any model, but I do think they were D models here, I think. That goes right. way back. Yeah, because they haven't had those here in many years but now. Every certain number of hours, we would hear the engines fire up. on a, if, the, if the wind wasn't blowing, you could hear, you could hear yeah. them, and yeah. they'd run the engines for what, 10 minutes, something like that. I don't remember, but there was a period of time where you could hear yeah, all well, of them fire a, up. That was when, when you... Went on alert in my day. You went on for seven days. Right? Uh, during your seven days, you were all but guaranteed there was going to be at least one exercise to start the engines. The exercise might have you move the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, you would essentially do an aborted takeoff, if that's what the message said to do. And that's as close as you get. We could have launched if we'd wanted to. That was what it right. proved. And so at least once a week, you'd have those. Well, then, if you moved them especially, it's going to take two hours to get everybody back and shut the engines down because you have to bring them back one at a time, shut down the engines, get a truck out there and back them back into position, pre-flight them again, get them all ready. Meanwhile, now you can go get one other airplane, bring him across. Right. It just it took it was two hours to get back inside if the, if the thing was a moving exercise. So if it was a moving exercise, the engines might be on for— You might hear them run for two hours. Two yeah. hours. Yeah. That must be what I remember hearing. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it uh, probably was, yeah. Because generally at least once a week you'd have one of those. Right. When the klaxon went off, what that meant to us was report to the aircraft as quickly as you can, start the engines, and decode a message. And until we decode the message, we didn't know if it was an exercise or not. So you received the message in the airplane. Right. Yeah. And it would, uh, they would just read a code to you. You know, as soon as we got an engine started, we'd get a generator online, we'd get a, get a radio going, and usually we'd have one of the navigators call. And he would get on that radio and, and say, controls a message. And what you'd hear back was something like, for doorknob, for doorknob, message follows, Foxtrot, Uniform, Charlie, and this might go on. It might be 30 right. letters, might be six. Right. right? Um, and we would, that would decode to something, and then we'd know, okay, if this is an exercise or not, right? and what kind of an exercise it was. But until you decoded, you didn't know. So we right. treated them all as real because for all we knew, they were for real. For all you knew, they yeah. might have been. And it was ingrained into us that if we heard that horn, you, you drop whatever you're doing and you run to your truck if you're not in the alert facility or you run to the airplane if you're on the facility and respond right now. You know? If somebody yelled, and the classic was, you're in the BX and a little old lady in tennis shoes comes running down the aisle and yells klaxon three times, klaxon, 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 you respond as if you heard the klaxon. Because really? maybe there's been a failure in the klaxon. And then they grab the little old lady and say, go in there and start yelling klaxon. How do you know? You don't know what's going on. So Wow. It was, it was always spring-loaded to go. Because mm-hmm. you had to get off the ground in minutes if this was real. Because uh, the, the submarine-launched ballistic missiles especially had a very short flight time. 
That's why in the Dakotas they built those bomber bases because they're as far as it's possible way, from salt water. Way, as far as ways you can get from. So it bought you more time for the get the airplanes off the ground and thus have a survivable response. Right. Yeah. When the, I was stationed in Arca- Arkansas, we we're much closer to salt water in the right. name of the Gulf of Mexico. And if a, if a Russian submarine <clears throat> crossed a certain line of longitude, you know, heading west, well, then they would restrict us to the facility. And if it crossed another line, they would, they would uh, put starting cartridges in all eight engines. Because on alert, you'd start these things with, uh, with a, uh, a starter cartridge, you call it. What it was was a howitzer shell that had been cut down and had slow-burning powder in it. And there was a breach in each of the engines, and the crew chief would load these usually into just two engines. Uh, but if the submarine got too close, he'd load it in all eight. Uh, and with that, with the co-pilot could throw a switch, and whatever engines had cartridges in them, that, that slow-burning powder would spin the engine and essentially be, act like a starter motor would. Right. Uh, so Is that how they were started always? No, no. You only there did were that. starter motors on them. Um, there were. Right. right. But, uh, but this worked faster. This worked faster, but it's real hard on the engines. So right. you generally only the did it on alert. And dirt and all the other. Right. Yeah, they're yeah. very dirty. And Combustion. And at, at a certain right. statistical rate, they would explode instead of burn slowly, too. <laughs> So that would be that was detrimental that to was, the that was <laughs> ugly when that happened. Yeah. Hey, so this is happening multiple times during a alert. In your mind, is it uh, when a thing goes off, is it always a oh shit in your stomach, this is it? Or is is it like god damn it, I gotta go do this thing now? It was a combination of both. And it kinda depended on the timing. Yeah. You know. Um, I got woke up and I think I've told Rip the story. Got woke up by the claxon one. Why I remember is a Sunday morning. I don't know because alert was just alert. You know, you lost track of days of the week. Didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, for some reason, remember it was Sunday morning, and it had been snowing. This is in North Dakota. It was snowing all night, but the temperature was like 33 degrees, and so there was a foot of slush on the ground. And I remember we and there we lived in little buildings right behind the airplanes, and I remember coming out of that building and stepping in the slush. And my first thought was, "Damn, an exercise Sunday morning at five o'clock." You know, come on. Um, but, you know, you do what you've been trained to do, and uh, mm-hmm. the pilots start the engines, and uh, the navigators decode the message, and they came up and they said, pilot, it decode, and I don't remember the numbers anymore. We would always talk about them in numbers. It's a message 19. I'm making that up. Well, that, that, whatever that was, it decoded to taxi to the hold line and await launch. I, can, I remember seeing that in the code book. So. And so we said, you mean the exercise version of that? And they said, no, the real one. So we had the electronic countermeasures officer, you decode it. You know, and he said, I already have. And it's, it's a real world, go to the whole line. So I remember taxiing up there in that pre-dawn darkness and looking out that runway, and I could see a snowplow out there vainly trying to keep the center line clear. You know. <laughs> and, and I thought, crap, if, we, if they launch us, we're going to be the snowplow. Because our, our, our book said you couldn't even attempt takeoff unless more than, uh, I think it was 0.4 inches of slush. Less than half an inch, and we had a foot of it out there. So if, they, if this comes to a real world launch, the second guy's going to find out if we blew enough of that off the runway. I guess because we're going to be a smoking hole at the end of the runway. You know, but that was that was uh, that was Cold War sack, man. It was a grim place in, in that sense. They were at war all the time, and um, you, they you had to take that all very seriously. You know? I was uh, reminded of that I was a young copilot in those days in. Strategic Air Command, you could not wear a flight suit unless you're on alert or flying. Okay. Uh, instead, you had to be in the uniform of the day. 
And so what this meant was everybody had a closet full of uniforms because they all had to be professionally pressed and starched. And, you know, you wear it one day, can't wear it again until it goes to the cleaners. And I was griping about that one time because I hadn't learned yet that a co-pilot should just keep his mouth shut. Um, and the squadron operations officer, who's the number two guy in charge of the squadron, he heard me. And so a couple minutes later, I'm standing at attention in front of his desk. And he's explaining to me, he says, the nuclear deterrence consists of the American people and leadership and the Soviet leadership having the belief that if you're ordered to annihilate millions of human beings, you will carry the order out. If they don't think you carry the order out, there is no deterrence. And why would they think that if you won't do the little stuff like where the clothes we tell you to wear, Lieutenant? So <laughs> shut the hell up. And tell you, there's, there's one of those things. And, and of course, Hard to argue with the logic. <laughs> that's exactly, it occurred to me, it was a light bulb moment. That's exactly yeah. why we were the way we were in that command. That's right. exactly that. So that the Russians believed so we were was, disciplined enough. So you were credible. Right, exactly. Just credibility. And everybody, I, I think everybody had to have their come to Jesus moment in the sack. Right. Where somebody set them straight about why things are the way they are here. Right. You know? And I, I've heard, I don't know how many other well, people getting similar talks. Let's let's go ahead and talk about SAC since we're headed in this direction. We want to talk about what it was like to fly a long mission. But let's go ahead. SAC is such an interesting organization uh, that that uh, it it really, nothing in the contemporary military parallels. Oh, no. SAC. It's the single most powerful military organization in human history. Easily. Easily. Two-thirds of the human race is nuclear weapons under one commander. That's, that's, that's never going to happen again. No. Um, yeah, it was, um, they had a blank check from Congress, pretty much, because what could be more important than nuclear deterrence? No, nothing. Nothing, there, nothing. At this time, nothing. Yeah, nothing. So they got pretty much what they wanted uh, from uh, the unlimited money to spend, um, extremely disciplined uh, for that reason we just discussed. Uh, mm-hmm. um, people outside the command generally dreaded getting an assignment to the command. Because because of that, because really? they, yeah they didn't the rest of the nobody military, wanted to be in SAC. I wouldn't say I did, but I mean but nobody who was already it, serving outside SAC right. wanted to wanted transfer, to transfer into, into SAC. No, and sometimes it was a level of craziness that was just I I blame I blame the they, discipline. It was a level of discipline, but, right? Um, uh, and every now and again, somebody getting in trouble because of that. They would bring a value in another command to this command and find out the hard way that that's not how it's done here, right? You know? Um, like like reporting if in a military manner to mm-hmm. any any superior. You, you didn't just walk in and say, hi, I, you wanted to see me. You always reported in a very formal manner, saluted from the position of yeah. attention. And, Regular and, Army and, kind of yeah. kind of protocol. And the rest of the, the Air Force didn't do that. I remember when I was uh, chief of training flight for a while, the squadron commander, had he wanted me to be in his office when any new pilot came in. He says, you got to collect his, his flight records anyway. And so you didn't. You can give him the tour of the squadron. So I got this guy in, and I can't remember exactly where he came from anymore. But in the interview with the squadron commander, he mentions that he's uh, bought a house in Memphis, which was a little over an hour away from where we were. And the squadron commander says, well, what do you mean you bought it? Has money changed hands? And he says, yeah, my, my family's moving in right now. And the squadron commander says, well, I hope they like living there. You're not going to live there. What? That's too far away. <laughs> one of the squadron commanders. He didn't know. No. Wow. One of the squadron commanders' responsibilities is he had to have a certain percentage of his crew force Available in place in a flight suit with mobility gear within X time. Okay. Right. And he was personally responsible for that. And if you didn't meet your responsibilities in SAC and your commander, you were going to get fired. And it was usually 
in a really public way so that everybody got the message. Right. The first operational readiness inspection I took part in, we failed. And on the stage at the base theater, they fired the wing commander, the vice commander, and the operations group commander is what we call them now, um, the, and the three ranking colonels were all fired in front of us, and the new ones were appointed. And those guys- At that, right then. Right then, at that moment. And uh, those, uh, those colonels, their families were out of their houses by the end of the week. It, wow. it was brutal. And I remember sitting there as a first lieutenant going, I get it. This, <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> Nobody says thanks for trying. Here's a participation trophy. Right. Like, failing that inspection meant that had the Russians started the war, this wing would not have done its part. This wing and, would not be operational right. in that. And in that. how can that ever be okay? Right. No, so, that's, that's so it's a pretty it, demanding place. One of my favorite stories is the is where the girl infiltrated the mm. infiltrated the the base. This is a oh, and the aftermath of that. This is this is real interesting. Everybody, pay attention. The, the the bravest people in the Cold War worked for what what SAC called the Wing Security Evaluation (WSE). These guys, their job was to go unannounced to SAC bases. Nobody at the base was told that this is a test or anything. And they would try to get into the command post, the weapons storage area, the alert facility. They'd see if they could get in past the security. Just to, and just In other words, SAC <clears throat> is testing itself exactly. constantly. And you got to understand the guards guarding these places have a round in the chamber. And I've been told they'll never get out of prison again if something bad happens on their shift. So the people trying to break <laughs> in under these circumstances are the bravest people I've ever Because they could about. easily have been oh, shot. Absolutely easily have been. Well, the way I, the story I got, of course, I wasn't there firsthand, but they showed up at Grand Forks. Un, it's, like I say, always unannounced. The wing commander wasn't told anything like that. And they sat in the parking lot of the weapons storage area, and that's the place where they stored and maintained the nukes. And they, they waited during shift change, and they read some airman's name tag off his fatigues. And after the shift change was done, one of the team members was an attractive young lady, and she bounced up to the entry point with a lunchbox and said, uh, my husband is Airman Schmuck, and he forgot his lunch. Can you get this to him? And the guard evidently said, sure, whatever you want. And uh, they sent the lunch pack back in there. And finally, somebody says, hey, Schmuck, your wife brought the lunch. And he said, wife? What are you talking about? So again, nobody's been told there's an exercise or anything. Oops. So the, the explosive ordnance disposal people respond, right? because they have to suspect it's something. And they got it out, to every SAC base had a place to deal with explosive ordnance. And they got it out there and they x-rayed it and it looked empty. And the, the way I was told the story, and they finally opened the thing up, there was a laminated card in there that says you failed the security evaluation. The, oh, um, sh the, <laughs> oh, shit the, is right. The full colonel in charge of security for the base was fired immediately. All of his like deputies, within an hour. Oh, right? Yes, absolutely, right now. Uh, all of his deputies were fired. All the squadron commanders were fired, and every guard up there was decertified from guarding nuclear weapons. They had to fly people in from other bases and retrain everybody. Wow. It was amazing. I'd never this seen anything like a... <laughs> And a lot of those details I got second and third hand about how, right, they, how but... they got away. But I do know But that you know enough to know that that probably is exactly what I happened. know they failed. I know they yeah. failed, especially. And then we were told that they, it was because this team had successfully gotten an unknown object into the weapon storage area. Oh god! So yeah, those, those, that was ugly. They're always evaluating us, you know. Uh, they're always trying to see if they get so, you to say something, do something, but, you know. and they would tolerate no deviation from yeah. from protocol. 
No, not when it deals with nukes and classified. There was no, no margin for error. No thanks for trying. Right. Nick and I went out to uh, uh, Washington a couple of years ago. Has that been two years ago? I think so. Yeah. And uh, got to go aboard a, a nuclear sub out there, and there were several layers of security before we were allowed on oh, board yeah. the allowed on board the thing. And when we were on board, there were areas that we could not approach. And I'm sure. I can't, I've never been on one, but I, I they imagine. They didn't want us asking about it and stuff. It's uh, It was a fascinating day. It really was. Oh, I'll bet. I'd it like was, it was absolutely amazing. What the, the, but the level of security around nuclear devices and stuff, they just uh, there was, do there was, not tolerate the slightest bit of slop. No. It's, and it's not, and it's not just. I mean, security, yes, but it's 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 maintenance of the stuff too. Mm-hmm. I was when you were pulling nuclear alert in a bomber, your crew was on alert when the crew commander signed for the weapons. There's a receipt, and when when I signed that thing, then my crew is now on alert. The other crew can go home. So my navigators were pre-flighting the, the weapons because we were supposed to assume alert. And one of the navigators came and got me and says, "You need to see this." So I climbed up in the bomb bay and I wormed my way up up in between these. Uh, short-range attack missiles, which are nuclear-tipped rockets we carried. Uh, and up on the top one, there was a drop of hydraulic fluid, about a half-inch diameter. That's it. Stop everything. We're not, wow. I'm not signing for these weapons. You know, and you could see where the drip came from, but that doesn't matter. Anything tied to nukes had to be perfect all the time. Right. You know, any discrepancy was not tolerated. So you didn't take authority over the over the payload no because it wasn't because it wasn't because it wasn't right yeah it wasn't pretty there's a discrepancy supposed to be yeah so i folded my arms and nobody's surprised at this the off-going crew they They knew what you were gonna do that's why they came got you right right yeah so they you know they weren't mad at us or anything this is the the way it is right so my memory is we didn't go on alert till after dark that night because it if i remember right they had to swap the whole airplane out to work on that Really? Yeah, and that's a it's a huge deal to load up another whole airplane with nukes, and uh, you know it, that's a monstrous task. They couldn't just repair, affect repair right that's, there. No, nah, I don't think they could. I think they had to get that launcher that had that had eight missiles on it. And I think they had to get that out. Well, if that's going to come out, that, you're not going to be. It was hydraulic, and that's what was leaking. Yeah, it was a rotary launcher, and it was a hydraulic powered. Right. So that was something to do with the drive for that right. thing is what was leaking. Yeah. So they couldn't just repair it. They had, they would have to repair and then certify the repair, and that's more than you can do standing right. there in the airplane. Right. Right. So they had to bring another oh, whole airplane out. Then I signed for that airplane's weapons, and then I was on alert. Right. And then the maintenance oh. took the other one away, you know. <laughs> oh, God. The, the alert force had absolute priority for all maintenance, all everything. Right. They would drop everything. They'd cancel flights if they had to to fix. The alert force had to be in perfect condition all the time. So – Tell us about the Strategic Air Command. This is a fascinating organization. We're, we're talking about their procedures and stuff, but what was the Strategic Air Command, and who was Curtis LeMay? <laughs> Curtis LeMay was actually the second commander-in-chief of the Strategic Air Command. He was second. And I don't remember the name of the first guy. But but we called that job SYNC-SAC, Commander-in-Chief Strategic Air Command. Uh, and Kurt LeMay, although he was the second one, he was the one that created the SAC that I lived in and that you've mm-hmm. read about. Right? right. 
Um, he was, uh, all his career, he was known as a hardcore, hard disciplinarian. Uh, he fully understood the application of violence in pursuit of national objectives. He was the one that engineered the burning down of Japanese cities during World War II. It was his, he was responsible for that. He was probably a colonel at the time. Oh, no, he was a three-star He was by that time a general. Oh, yes, yeah. In World, the seventh end Air, of World I think it was War 7th Air Force was his command, if I remember right. right. Uh, and, he, yeah, he's the one that, that was in command of all the forces that were busy bombing Japan. Uh, he was Which killed far more people than both nuclear devices oh, combined. Yeah. One far night in, more white, no, I think one night in Tokyo, they killed more than both Hiroshima and Nagasaki did, I think. And, of course, those numbers, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki numbers, are very nebulous because everybody counts them right. differently. You know, right. There's those that where there's still casualties, you know. Right. Everybody, yeah. everybody who's 92 that died last week that was there. Right. Might, might be counted as one, you right, know. Right. So, so nobody knows exactly what the number is killed in the immediate explosion. Right. Um, but we killed more in Tokyo. Um, With conventional weapons. Yeah, it was a mixture yes. of conventional weapons and incendiaries. One of the things mm-hmm. amazed people had done figured out the mixture of that. And those Japanese cities made out of paper and wood largely at the time. Right. Uh, there would, it would create a self-sustaining fire tornado that mm-hmm. would just move through the town of it, powered by itself. And it would just suck all the oxygen out, burn everything in its path. It was terribly destructive. So LeMay was not, he was no shirker. <laughs> he from, was legendary. Uh, from uh, pursuit of duty. And not at all. if there's not a doubt in your mind that Curtis LeMay would, in fact, have been capable of destroying all life in the Northern Hemisphere. No doubt On the mind. Asian continent. No doubt in mind. He was one of the greatest air leaders ever in history. And there's a thousand stories about him, about, about his mm-hmm. level of discipline. And um, uh, one of my favorites was the first KC-135. And they flew it to Offutt, uh, for him, Offutt Air Force Base for him to inspect. And he's boarding the airplane with his, with his always present cigar. And uh, somebody on the tanker crew said, General, you, you can't smoke in this airplane. And he says, why the hell not? Well, it's full of fuel. It might explode. <laughs> and he took the cigar and he looked around and he said, it wouldn't dare. <laughs> he was once asked by a reporter. It wouldn't dare. There was a reporter uh, waiting to interview him one time. And the reporter watched a parade of colonels and generals going in and out of his office. And getting, he could hear shouting going on in the office. And this reporter asked the secretary, does, does the general have an ulcer? And the secretary says, no, but he's a carrier. <laughs> He's a passive character. He was notoriously difficult to work for, from what I understand, because he's very demanding, and he did no excuses. Right. And that, he created that atmosphere at SAC, the no excuses atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, um, anytime we were practice bombing, and, and if we dropped, my crew dropped a bad bomb, missed a target, that had to be explained. That's not okay. I'm going to be standing in front of somebody the next day explaining this is what happened. You know? the first and time you that, better know. Oh, yeah. The first time this happened when I was a crew commander, I uh, began to explain the malfunctions my navigators had because the navigators aimed the bombs. We, we just drove the bus. Right. Um, and I began to list the malfunctions, and the, the, the lieutenant colonel I'm talking to interrupts me, and he says, Captain, uh, you're not here so I can hear your damn excuses. You're here to tell me why it's never going to happen again. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> it was that. The whole command was like that. It was right. Very success-oriented. And, uh, right. Uh, like I've said several times, very disciplined. Um, 
I had to explain to a new pilot that came from outside the command one time that we were never in the squadron building in civilian clothes. Because really? yeah, he had reported in civilian clothes. We never come to this building in civilian clothes. <laughs> we just don't. This, this is the bomb squadron. You are not a civilian in here. Right. Right. So if we're coming in the weekends to mop floors or whatever, because we never had contractors to do that, um, you come in in fatigues, but you don't come in civilian clothes. Right. So the, it was constant reminders about the, the command. It was LeMay that created that atmosphere. That, and, it, and he was right in doing so. It right. had to be that way. I guess it was not procedurally necessary, but... It created the atmosphere that fostered a high level of of uh, accuracy, precision, competence, adherence to the protocol. That sort of and, and like I was lectured, that that was deterrence. Deterrence right. is a mental state right. of the Soviet leadership. Right. We won't, they we, won't, we cannot fuck with these guys. Yeah, we won't help, like how it ends if we do. Right. They had to be reminded of that all the time. Right. And it was LeMay that understood that. Right. You know, that it's, it's all about the potential for violence. So where did SAC fit into the, to the military hierarchy at the time? They were uh, a, a division of the Air Force? Yes. Or were they? Yeah, they were, they were what the Air Force in those days called a major command. There was, there was four major commands that I can remember. There was the Air Training Command, self-described. Shepherds, right. right. Strategic Air Command. Tactical Air Command, that was fighters, and Military Airlift Command, that's, that's airlift. Logistics. Right. right. Those are the major flying commands. Right. There were other commands, but those are the flying commands. And SAC was, was bombers and tankers. Right. During my time, they were the sole tanker manager. They owned all the tankers in the U.S. Army. Really? So all refueling was done through SAC? Yes. They, they had operational refueling. control of all the tankers. Tankers is what sets the U.S. Air Force apart from everybody else. The ability, the almost 100% universal capability to refuel our airplanes. You know, that's a that's a fascinating development. When you and I have discussed tanker refueling many times, when was that developed? When what was, was the technology to aerially refuel an aircraft developed? Um, the very first ones were done in the 1930s, and LeMay was involved in one of those. Wow. When he was a captain or something. And it was just they dropped the hose from one airplane to another and moved some fuel through it. It was just a can we do it kind of thing. Wow. But so, just, so somebody grabbed the end of the hose yeah, yeah. and hooked it onto the tank. Yeah, there's photos of that out there, too, you'll, you'll find here. And, and they just gravity-fed yep. fuel down the hose. It was a concept, you know, can, right. can, could it be done kind yes. of concept. Right. But uh, purpose-designed tankers, the KC-135 was the first designed from the ground up. Well, it was a Boeing 707. Right. It was the first one that the U.S. Air Force went out and said, we want an airplane specifically to refuel other airplanes. It had a predecessor in the KC-97, which was a four-propeller, two-jet, later modification of a B-29, actually. Right. Uh, But that was always seen as kind of an interim until we get a a full-jet tanker. So the KC-135, which is still out there, that's one of those airplanes like the B-52 that the taxpayers have gotten every penny out of those things. Right. They're still out there. And they're going to be out there. And that was designed in the 50s as well. Yep. Yeah, about the same time as the B-52. They were seen as partners in the right. acquisition process. You know, this, They were both right. bought for one thing, and that was nuclear war. Right. The tankers, would, the, on the big nuclear mission, if we'd have gone, we were going to take off, and shortly after that, within a, probably two hours, we're going to meet a tanker. Uh, and he's going to give us what he's supposed to give us to make the targets. 
if we needed more than that, there was a word we could pass to him, a code word, that would require him to give us all his fuel. All of it. And you had the capacity on the aircraft for all of that fuel? It depends on what's going on. You know, I mean, uh, under the the way the mission was planned, we did not. But maybe there's been problems. You know, maybe we've had to stay at a lower altitude longer than we thought we were going to and burn more fuel than we thought we were going to. If that scenario came along, we could tell the tanker give us all his fuel. And in the the standpipes in his tanks, he had about, I think, you have to ask a tanker guy, but they had four or five minutes of flight time after all the fuel they could pass us was gone. So the engines would run another four or five minutes or something like that. And they were supposed to use that to turn out of our way. And if, then crash the airplane. Yeah. Not survivable. Yeah. They, you could not bail out of a case 135. They even stopped carrying parachutes in them finally. The crews used to laugh at the idea that they had parachutes in there. Because there's just not a way to, there's not a way to, get, not out. A way to get out. Right. right. Oh, God almighty. So those guys, uh, the tankers are terrible. So when, when they got that word from you, they were on a suicide mission. Yep. How many? That didn't really ever occur. Did it? Nope, nope. That was only. But that, it was that was it was that was in the protocol. Right. That was right? in the books for the big nuclear war. Yeah. What we right. called the PSYOP, the Single Integrated Operating Plan. Um, that was the big nuclear war plan, the PSYOP, right. and it was in this. It was it was a page in the PSYOP, if necessary. The U.S. doesn't plan kamikaze sorties. Right. Our our nuclear attack sorties were survivable sorties. Mm-hmm. At least on paper, you know, we we weren't required to deliberately run ourselves out of fuel or something like that. Right. Um, but if you could, uh, if you could reach, I think the the rule, if I remember right, was if you could reach your first target and safe escape beyond, then then you were probably going to go. So it's not you don't have to blow yourself up with the weapons, but you might have to go on one that you know you're not going to come back from. Mm-hmm. But only under the psyop. Right. You know, like I said, there's US, never a training scenario under no, which this was. The U.S. does not do kamikaze. Right. So uh, the aerial refueling, that is such an interesting scenario. I guess you've got to be at a certain altitude in clear air. You don't? No. I, I can't don't. tell you the times I refueled in the weather at night. IFR refueling. Oh, yes. You're, you need to please fuel. explain this to us. You uh, you find the tanker with radar, right? It was a, that was a mutual process between the tanker and the receiver, right? Uh, and See, I just I'm sitting here without any IFR experience, and I just can't imagine not being able to see what the hell you're going to connect your airplane to. Well, but you would you, eventually, okay? Right. Um, you when you got a few hundred feet behind them, almost no matter what the weather, you could see them. You could right. see there he was. But you he, see his his. What the boom? I guess. Hanging yeah, you see his down profile. Yeah, you can see. Okay, I can see four engines, and we also had infrared on the on the uh, the B fifty two infrared cameras that would that were steerable, and right. we'd use them to help locate the hot spots of his engine and stuff. Mm-hmm. Whether, uh, but I many many times I've refueled where there's no outside references. Just the only thing we can see is the tanker. Can't see the ground. Can't see the sky. Just see the wow. tanker. And those are terribly disorienting. As soon as you got plugged in, you felt like he was doing barrel rolls or something. It's all just spatial disorientation. Really? Yeah. What causes the spatial disorientation? The cloud movement? Yeah, just uh, the lack of, uh, of visual references that make lack any sense. Lack of a stationary reference. Yeah, right. and you know you can't even look at your attitude indicator that you normally fly instruments by. You can't look at that. You can only look at the tanker because uh, you're flying formation with the tanker is what you're doing. Right. 
So just looking up into that void with no other horizon or anything, it just it just messes with your senses. Wow. And you, you start to feel like he's turning and rolling. All and, this kind of, and you actually just, physically perceive that. Yeah, really. and you just have to seat. fight that off. You, know, right. you just have to just ignore it as much as you can. <laughs> oh, and it's, it's not an easy task. How long does it take to refuel? To take on whatever load you're gonna. Well, that obviously roll varies the, with the load right. a lot. Okay, but um, typically, on training sorties, we never needed the fuel; we needed the practice. Right. Uh, and so they'd only pump us usually about ten thousand pounds, which only took a few minutes. But but uh, for instance, the, the Desert Storm sorties, it, uh, my unit was deployed to RAF Fairford, and they flew their combat missions from there and back every night. Mm-hmm. Uh, those required. Uh, one tanker pre-strike and two tankers post-strike. So from each of those, they would get 100, 125,000 pounds, something like that, if memory serves. And how long would that? That'd take 45 minutes to an hour. Hooked like up that. to the airplane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. An hour hooked up to the My uh, My first check ride in the, in the left seat as a crew commander, to pass the check ride, I had to have 45 minutes of continuous contact time, we call it, with the boom plugged in. I could have two inadvertent disconnects during that time, but if I had a third one, you fail. So you had to practice staying under for a long time because it just took a long time. The tanker could pass the fuel faster than we could take it. Right. So he would. He had to run his he pumps. He had an at a, enormous pump, I guess. They. Yeah, I don't know anything about their systems really, but yeah, it was capable of passing fuel faster. And if he if he turned his pumps all on to us. The, it would back pressure the, the refueling manifold that's feeding our tanks, right. and it would pop the boom off if that happened. Wouldn't break anything, but you couldn't stand. It was designed to have. Yeah, there was a safety. Yeah, little rubber nipple or something like that. that yeah, there was designed to on the bomber. Pop. There was toggles that would grab the end of the boom like this, right. and they were they they were capable of being overridden. You know, kind of like a uh, like a roller delay on a rifle. You know, it would, right. just, it would force would pop them off. Right. Without, Sufficient without force damage. would cause them to release without breaking. Without doing damage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, if for some reason the electronics failed and we couldn't disconnect manually, that was the last option was what we call a brute force disconnect. You, you just jerk the thing out of it. Yeah. We specifically avoid the use of jerk. <laughs> you just reduce power <laughs> and allow yourself to kind of to fall s- off the back. Gradually of build up the yeah. force. Right. Right. Yeah. There was early in the air refueling world. There was lots and lots of mishaps. And oh, God at, almighty. At Can these, you imagine the number of times? Uh, at the bomber schoolhouse, there was, a, there was a hallway that had nothing but photos of refueling mishap airplanes. And some of them were just, how do you even do that? You know, there, was, right. there was one where the refueling boom from a tanker was stuck through the engine pods of a, and broke off. And the, guy, the bomber took the refueling pod home with him, stuck through the, <laughs> the engine pod like an arrow. How do you even get that that far off? I, yeah, you know. I don't know. That's that's well, I could figure out a way to do it, but I mean, it sounds to a, to a civilian like such an incredibly complicated thing. You're both flying along at 400 miles an hour, well, and you are going to put the refueling boom into a nipple on the top of your airplane and keep it there at a fixed distance at 400 miles an hour. For 45 minutes without fucking anything up. Yeah. <laughs> it was, we had, uh, we, Amazing. You know, as a receiver, we would just fly formation on the tanker, the airplane. 
The right. boom operator tanker is his job to fly that boom into our refueling. So he had aerodynamic right. surfaces. Right, he had little, little V-shaped wings up there, and he right. would literally fly that thing into the receptacle, right. which was so he's just as us. responsible for this as you guys are. Yeah, we all we can do is get in position, and he's got a, he's got he's a, got he's the one that stabs yeah, the exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. I've had those guys wrap that thing off my windscreen a couple times. That scared the crap out of you. Oh, no, I don't. But um, um, every bomber, if you get up on the top and look, you'll see all kinds of marks where the boomers missed at some time mm-hmm. in the past. You know, it's just not an easy task. Gouges. We had to we had to keep that our receptacle in a four foot cube. That was the limits. If we got outside that, it would disconnect. Right. The electrical signal would disconnect us. And then as an instructor, you had to be able to fly out at all those limits. You had to be able to come stabilize at the mm-hmm. left limit, the right limit, the upper limit, the inner and the out limits. Right. Um, and that, so that's, that's refueling squared. I mean, it's twice as hard as just right. refueling. Right. Oh, God. Well, so if you're going to fly a, a training mission and uh, you were actually in, in combat in the Persian Gulf, but... I would imagine there were there were instances during which you would uh, take off from North Dakota and fly somewhere a long way off, do some shit, and come back. Oh, what yeah. was the longest mission you ever flew? Mine was forty-one hours. It was the longest. You sat in the seat. No, no, no. We had, 41 we had three hours. pilots, so we rotated left seat, right seat, out of the seat. And how long, it, what was the longest period of time you were in a seat? About eight hours on that one, on that sortie. Right. But I've flown, I don't know how many training sorties where I was in the seat for 12 hours, maybe 13. Training 13. sorties, it wasn't unusual for training sorties to be 12 hours long. I've seen both the Atlantic and the Pacific on the same On flight. the same day? Oh, a number of times, yeah. Because we could. That's what, what the B-52 has. It has range and payload. Right. So our schedulers thought nothing of scheduling a refueling off the California coast and a low-level bomb attack in New York State. That's what worked out. Because <laughs> so, we could. It was that simple. Right. So you've got to be able to. It was an endurance. Yep. Flying a B-52 was an endurance thing. Yeah. You had to be able to pace yourself. You know, And it's very heavy on the controls. It takes, it takes mm-hmm. muscle power to fly the thing around. And then at the end of virtually every training sortie, you would spend two hours doing touch and goes because it, it took two hours to get two pilots recurrent. And you had to, every, you know, each of the guys had to have a precision approach, a non-precision approach, a touch and go, a low approach, a no-flap approach. And this just takes time. To it's, accumulate uh, all these right. experiences. And, and you never, ever passed up a chance to reset what pilots call currency. There was, we had a whole list of events, and you had to refuel once every 60 days. You had to uh, take off once every 30 days. Whatever, and that's those are currency items. Mm-hmm. And you, if you, you never pass an opportunity to update your currency because you didn't know. Going non-current was your problem. So at the end of the, end of the training mission, you guys would decide who's going to do the following currency items? Or, yeah, the, or was you, that planned into the... Into the oh, you, you would, on the mission planning day, the day before, you'd look at all that stuff. Okay, what do we need? Right. You know? And so you knew what you were going to oh, do when you got okay. back. So that's it's all, part of the, all right. part of the schedule. So at the end of the day, the hardest work for the pilots comes along, really. So it's just exhausting. Right. Oh, I'm sure. I'm just, it's so fun. here's an obvious question. If you're in the chair 12 hours, when do you pee? When you get a chance, uh, you can get out. There was a urinal on the lower deck. 
and you climbed down a ladder down where the navigators were. And right. Behind them, there was a urinal, which was, it looked like a coffee can that was uh, three, three feet tall and had a spring-loaded lid on it. Completely unusable by a female. You, you, right. you had to stand to use this. And right. it was underneath, it was, I think it was underneath the water jug down there or something. Whatever it was, you had to get your hips forward and use it. You know, it's right. pretty tough. But you could get out of the chair. You could get out of the seat, yeah. And there was, there How was, often would you get up every couple hours to stretch your legs? I mean, you, 12 hours in a seated position is, that's kind of difficult physically for a human to do. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. I mean, it depends right. on the profile of the mission. You know, sometimes there just wasn't hardly a chance. Right. And I've gone a 12-hour mission and not got out at all. You know, just wow. landed with a full bladder because just the pace of the mission was such that there wasn't a chance. Right. And uh, obviously, one pilot had to be at the controls at all times. And so if you only had two pilots on board, you couldn't swap seats because that meant that somebody, nobody would be at the controls for some amount of time. Oh, yeah. I see and, so, and generally, the co-pilot was qualified in the right seat, the pilot was qualified in the left seat, and an instructor was qualified in both seats. Right. That was one of the big things when I became an instructor is I had to be ambidextrous on the controls. Because if you're in the pilot's seat, the yoke is in your left hand and the throttle's in your right. Mm-hmm. In your co-pilot seat, Doesn't the yoke is in your right hand. Right. So one of the things, when you got selected to upgrade from co-pilot to crew commander, one of the things, big things you had to do is start flying with your left hand. And, and planes aren't normally flown with the left hand. Military planes aren't. Right. Well, Piper Cherokees are, typically, because you sit in the left seat. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, so the throttle will be in the middle. But military planes generally are, are flown with the stick in your right hand and the throttle's in your left well, so on a big, long mission, you're over various types of terrain and water and everything, and you're at what altitude in a B-52? Oh, it varied a lot. Um, cruising between activities. Like if you're ferrying over to Southeast Asia. Oh, you'd, you'd, you'd try to go as high as you could for pr- pr- practical. For fuel right. purpose. So right. 39, 40,000 feet it would be a typical number for right. that. And then low levels. Just above commercial aircraft. You try to stay right. away in the, in the 48 states. You try to stay away from the altitudes that they liked. 32. They liked between no 30 and 30. and 39, right. something like that. So you'd and be, we try to stay below or above that. You know, and it's usually easier to be below that. Um, oh really? Yeah. The the B-52 in in on paper had a 50,000 foot ceiling, but um, I had a G model to 48, I think, and just wouldn't go higher. And an H model to Oh, 45, something like that. It really? just wouldn't that's, go higher. That's the highest you've ever been? Yeah, it just wouldn't go anywhere. There's just not enough the air for the engines. and the, Right. You know, just they would start, won't climb above that. Right. They would start doing what we call a compressor stall, where the, you know, as you, as I know you know, but a jet engine is, is just a series of, of uh, aerodynamic aerofoils that push the air back and compress it, and airfoils can stall aerodynamically. and So in an engine, you call that a compressor stall. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you stop producing useful thrust. It can destroy the engine. Depends on the engine design. Um, some of those stalls aren't very hard, and they're just kind of an annoyance. Right. Sometimes they can they can cause physical damage <coughs> to the engine. But if you're if you're experiencing those kind of those kind of failures, you drop down in altitude. Yeah, because you don't want to damage the engines if you can avoid it. Obviously, you know. <laughs> that's a bad yeah. plan in an airplane. Bad idea. <laughs> so, uh, so the highest you've ever flown was what? I've been uh, to 49,999 feet in a T-38. Oh, in a T-38. I see. Yes. 
and that's probably the, about the ceiling of a two. The Air Force says at fifty thousand feet, you need to be in an astronaut suit, right? Pressure suit. So, and you of course never went above. No, right, no. right. I understand. So, uh, when you're flying over uh, forty thousand feet, you're over most weather, right? Yeah, except you're, for maybe a big thunderstorm. Right. Yeah. So yeah, they could they, they, they punch through, there, but yeah. but. Uh, and you would obviously fly around those. Oh, yeah. Whenever, yeah, you don't want to be in the middle no. of that much. You no. Know, when I taught aviation weather, I, I always told the guys that God loves his thunderstorms. We know this because he makes 40,000 a day on this planet. <laughs> and they're very well armed to deal with human beings who poke holes in them. <laughs> so, in fact, it was just, we have the final report isn't in, and so I'm not giving away anything here, but... You know we lost a T-6er just a few months ago, and that was... Really? I'm, no, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. And it was thunderstorm-related, I'm sure. I haven't... Nobody's seen the final safety report, but... Yeah, right. I was, uh, I was very gratified. One of the guys in that, that had to eject out of that plane, I had given him an emergency training sortie in the simulator two days before where I made him eject. So, I like to think... Hopefully that, that helped. Uh, yeah, right. I hope so. Right. Yeah. Those are two instructor pilots. So if you're flying along at 40,000 feet, can you see down? Can, was, the, was your position in the, in the cabin such that a forward glance will show you the, show you the ground? Or yeah. Or you, are you above the horizon? In a no, you could, you could see the ground, but the nearest thing you could see was 15 or 20 miles away from there probably. Right. Just because of the downward vision right. angle. Like that. Right. And that varies a lot from airplane to airplane, of course. The right. B-52 was particularly bad for visibility. Seeing out of it, even for the pilots, was difficult. Because of the angle of just, the and the, Just the, the nature, yeah. It didn't have a clear canopy, you know. It, it had just windows, you know. Right. And there's frames between the windows and stuff. and So it wasn't a high visibility airplane. And the F-16, by contrast, the pilot sits under a, a completely unbroken canopy. It's It's... Not broken by any framework Total or anything. Yeah. 360. Yeah, it's a bubble canopy that right. has no seams or anything in it. Right. So he's got designed for looking around. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's one of the F-16's best things. When I talk to my friends who flew it, is the visibility out of it is spectacular. Right. right. You feel like you're sitting outside the airplane. They tell me. Well, so for those of us that have never been at that altitude in in charge of an airplane, what does it feel like? Flying along at forty thousand feet, and the airspeed is in excess of four hundred miles an hour. Yeah, your ground speed might be in excess of five hundred. Right. Because the higher you go, the higher your true airspeed. The higher your true airspeed, right. the higher your ground speed. Right. So, so are you aware of movement? There's very little sensation of speed, even supersonic. There's very little yeah. sensation of speed, yeah. unless you fly into a cloud or something like that. So, so now suddenly you've got a reference outside yeah, yeah, of yeah. If, if you were to pierce a cloud you know that sudden motion would tell you wow i'm going fast but but in clear air you can't really there's not there's little sensation you know you have to look at the ground for a minute to realize oh, okay it's moving you know crawling along but you're so high it's not an apparent i like to get window seats when i fly because i spend at least a third of the time looking out the window. Oh, yeah. When I fly, I do it's, too. It's fun. I just like to see the ground going by and look at the geomorphology and, you know, all the all the 
clouds and all stuff. Stuff you can't see from can, the ground. Right. Yeah. All, everything you can't see from the ground fascinates me. Yeah, one of the most spectacular things I ever saw in an airplane is we were uh, up north, headed north in a B-52, middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, and we flew underneath the northern lights. That was really something. I, get, I have this distinct memory of looking straight up. We had a window in the ejection hatch straight above our heads. And I, I remember looking up through that thing and seeing that, seeing them come down at me like, you know, it's, sorry, it's spread out. Right. You know, instead of the curtain that you get on the ground, it was a, it was a looked like a starburst above. Right. It was just spectacular. Oh, so God. I, I, it's one of the things that pilots like about flying. It's just, yeah, it's just stuff you look at. You know? Yeah. So many fascinating Different perspectives than a ground-bound person. Oh, yeah. It's, it's right. one of the reasons it's such an addicting thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, Military God. pilots yeah. will all tell you universally that they have the best job the human race ever came up with. They just <laughs> never. You know, I feel very fortunate that during my time as a crew commander, as an instructor pilot, that I knew I was having the most fun I'm ever going to have in my whole life. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's just it's never going to be better Never going to get better than this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun to know it at the time. Right. And not have to look back and go, gee, I wish I would have appreciated it. Right. But I think every military pilot no tells you, oh, they appreciate it at the time. They, they know they they've got the best do. job ever. How many different aircraft have you flown? I've been. Do you remember? Uh, you know, it's not that many. I learned to fly in a Piper Cherokee. Uh, that was in. That was, I was still in college, yeah. Oh, I, before you went. Right. And I got a private pilot's license out of it. The Air Force paid for that as a as, since I was a pilot candidate. Yeah. Out, they paid for that. Right. I had to pay for the license exam. They paid for the flying hours. Right. Um, and see, so at pilot training, then I got you had to get qualified in a T thirty seven to solo in it, uh, and then you had to get qualified in a T thirty eight to solo in it, and then uh, went to the B fifty two, and I had been a co pilot in the B fifty two for a very short time, when they flew in a half a dozen T thirty eights up to Grand Forks. And said, go over and fly those to all co-pilots, bomber tanker co-pilots. They said, go over and fly those planes. So they had instructor pilots over there from the Air Training Command. And I think the third time I flew it, when we went in, he said, well, that was your check ride. You're now qualified in T-38 again. Okay, what are we supposed to do with it? And the guy from Air Training Command said, we don't know. We were just told to check you guys out. <laughs> so we went to our, <laughs> our hierarchy and said, what, what are we supposed to do with them? And they said, we were supposed to fly them. And do what? <laughs> do what with them? We don't know. There's no rules yet. Mm -hmm. So for the next year and a half, we had the best license to steal that any military pilots ever had. Go fly a supersonic, fully acrobatic jet with essentially no rules. Just don't don't crash. You know, don't land gear up. Just fly the damn thing around. Log some hours. Yep. Wow. So we said, well, can we take them cross country? Can we go stay overnight some other place? Sure. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, oh, it's fun! What a cool deal! And here we all, we're all Everybody our, dreams of being yeah, able to. And do And we're all that. in our mid twenties. And yeah. the single, I had my first divorce right after those planes showed up, so I'm single again. And you know, you get to call up some girl that you, you knew in college. And, hey, you know, my buddy and I are gonna come down there, and uh, we're not gonna have any wheels. So, how, you much, how about you, you bring, get another girl and come get us? And come you, pick us up. You'll know we'll us because we got the we'll flying go helmet under one arm. And, you know, we're wearing a G suit and. You know, skin tight clothes. You'll, you'll recognize <laughs> it. It's great. It's never going to happen again. Huh? No, 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 no. That's an experience. And, and we learned things yet. doing that. You know, it was the idea was just to give copilots experience in anything. All flying right. time is valuable. Right. And you're always a student in an The more things you experience, in, in the more 
different circumstances that just yeah. builds this deep base. Of, yeah, and you can't imagine two airplanes more opposite than a B-52 right. and a T-38 in every possible way. Yeah. Completely yeah, opposite. Sure so it was a very good experience. And, you know, we we learned a lot just about flying in general. Uh, right. Got in trouble several times. And the, the lesson in a couple of those was sometimes it sucks to fly. Because we didn't do anything wrong. It just came out badly, you know. Uh, and it wasn't our because fault. Was not just, all of the variables are under your control. That was a lesson that I had to slowly learn. Right. All military pilots have to slowly learn. When you're young and stupid, you do stupid things with the airplane. And if you survive, you start to learn that, mm, you know, maybe that wasn't the smartest thing I've ever done. Right. I know I had a friend that, that uh, had a bird come through the windscreen. And um, uh, it uh, he got in a lot of trouble because it turned out he was flying lower than he was supposed to, you know. He would try to t say, well, what's that got to do with bird strikes? Guys have struck birds at 20,000 feet. And the safety board told him, don't change the subject. You weren't at 20,000 feet. <laughs> you weren't. <laughs> well, we we're not talking was, about the bird. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I remember watching that uh -huh. process and, and realizing a couple things. One is, this was for my benefit, not his. Right. This, they're, they're saying to the rest of us, watch what happens okay, when you yeah. breach discipline in this command. Um, and the other thing that occurred to me in, in big capital letters was, I don't care how good a pilot you are, and I'm, I'm the best, just ask me. I don't care how good a pilot you are, you're not in control of everything. No. You're not in control of the birds. You know, you know, it really is, just as off the topic, it is amazing to me that bird strikes are as either rare or as inconsequential as they could be. I mean, you put a goose through a jet engine. Birds have that, killed hundreds of people. Yes, I'm sure hundreds. they have. It's on. How would they not have? Yeah, yeah, they're especially on propeller-driven aircraft. Well, the good news about propeller-driven aircraft Landing which, and is uh, the the prop protects the engine pretty well. Does it? Yeah, cuts it, the bird out. Yeah, before it gets in there. Tends to. Yes. Right. I know they've had a couple of prop strikes with birds out here at Shepherd, and it didn't damage them. With the T6. Yeah. Did uh, so if a jet engine ingests. A bird, what can it tolerate? What depends it, on the engine, depends on the bird, a lot of, right. lot of variables. But um, sometimes uh, T-37 engines, they tear them down for routine inspections and go, huh, I wonder when it ate a bird. Right. No, nothing happened. So a dove it's, could... Sucked it up and chewed, spit it out, you know. Dove could go through there and not, might. not tear a lot of stuff On up. the other hand... Uh, uh, a duck uh, might be a... You throw a pencil in a T-38 engine, it's going to destroy the engine. A pencil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that thing can tolerate none of that. Right? Wow. It's just the it's just the design parameters are so tight in it that it can't take any of that. Um, I had a compressor stall in a T-38 when I was a student that destroyed the engine. It uh, it made a lot of noise, scared the hell out of me, but I found found out that at idle it, it, it seemed normal. It was giving me normal indications at idle. Uh, it was only later after I landed that and they inspected the engine that they told me they, they threw the thing away, and it was a compressor stall that did it and a part broke the oh. fan blade broke and now it goes back breaking more blades you know that's right cascade so, failure right so bird bird easily can break blades and engines right and some engines are more tolerant you know and, and it, there's just so many variables mm -hmm. they had they put a what they call a bird proof windscreen on the t-37 when i was flying it and um it was thicker plexiglass and the standard joke was it was designed to take a, a, a two-pound bird at 150 knots or a 150-pound bird at two knots. 
<laughs> and the thing distorted uh, your view through the windscreen, something terrible. We hated yeah. those, those airplanes. Yeah. We'd right. rather take our chances. <laughs> it, it, it really distorted the view. Yeah. Because it was yeah, so I'm thick. Sure it did. Well, so what was your favorite airplane to fly? Oh, the B-52. Absolutely. More than the T-38? T-38 was a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. <clears throat> now, Chuck Yeager has always said that his favorite aircraft was the T-38 to fly because it's just analog, seat of the pants, simple jet airplane. It's a World War II airplane that's supersonic. That's what right. it is. Yeah. The A model was. Right. You know, they don't have, they've all been converted to C models now, and now they're modern jet fighters. Right. Uh, with all the, all the digital controls and everything in them, the heads-up display and stuff. Mm -hmm. The ones I flew when I was dual qualified in B-52s, T-38s, those are A models. So, right. yeah, they were, don't get me wrong, they were a lot of fun. But I like the B-52 because it had a mission and it and, right. and it did it well. And it's it's one of the most well-known airplanes in history. People that can't identify, oh, any other airplane can identify a B-52. see you know? it from the air, from the ground, and know you're looking at a B-52. Yeah. There's nothing, nothing any more unmistakable than that yeah. profile. And, and it's fun to know that the last thing your any potential enemy wants to see is me and my eight engines. <laughs> he does not want to see that. No, he does not. It's fun to fly that airplane. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I was in a, for one point in my career, I, I primarily did uh, non-nuclear contingency planning. And SAC had, you said it earlier, SAC had plans to kill every human being on the planet with nukes and with conventional weapons. Right. Um, and it, it only made sense well, that they did Conventional weapons were part of their, oh, yeah. part of the game plan as well. Oh, yes. Um, uh, and so in this job, SAC would tell us, here's the what if, you know, what if Argentina invades Mexico, you know, who, what will you target? What kind of weapons would you need to support that kind of thing? And we'd, we'd sit, these would go back and forth between us and headquarters and headquarters would finally approve it. And basically we'd roll it up and put it in a safe in case we need it someday. It was while I was in that job that they, in essence, called us up one day and said, dust off your Panama plan because we're going. So it's, wow. it only makes sense that they did this. This is all done sure. as a precautionary. Sure. So the basic. So you don't have to do it right now in a hurry from scratch when, when you don't have time. Somebody's already right. thought something about it. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that was what we did. In there it was non-nuclear contingency planning. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I can't begin to tell you all the things we did. A lot of it, I'm sure, is still classified because I mean, just from a sensitivity standpoint. Right. You know. Right. We don't want to have. We don't have, want to have the contingency plan for bombing Jerusalem right. in public. You don't say that stuff out loud. No. Right. And we were, during my day in the Cold War, we couldn't even fly into Canadian airspace without diplomatic permission in a B-52. Oh, really? Because yeah. it was just, it was, Wasn't that the route to the Pacific, though? Yeah, but you had to stay south of the Canadian border until you got to the feet wet. Really? Yeah. Now, sometime, once a year, there'd be a big exercise they called snow time where we would get blanket permission to fly up about 80 degrees north, turn around, descend to the, down on the deck, and try to penetrate NORAD's defenses. It was an annual exercise. So then they would give us blanket permission to do it. But on a routine basis, you could not. Really, yeah, the, only country, you the only country in the world besides the States that you can land in without any problem was England. Oh, really? Yeah. English have a, they have a long tradition of bird watching watching airplanes, mm -hmm. you know. During Desert Storm, there was hundreds of people at the end of the runway, all times. And they're out there recording in their logbooks the tail numbers and any nose art they see, you know. And they, they, there's a whole society of this in England. So you're always right. welcome in England, you know. <laughs> and they just, they have a whole different idea of air traffic control. It's, it operates on the theory that it's a big sky and airplanes aren't that big, kind of. 
much more loose than right. we than we do. Right. Uh, when I went over there to pre-brief them for our plans for Desert Storm, and I, I expected it was going to be about a two-hour meeting. I had an easel with displays on and stuff. And I talked for about five minutes, and the, the ranking guy says, you know, these are going to be combat missions, right? Yes. Do whatever you want. You know, every day if a member of the royal family is airborne, we put out a notification that stay out of their airspace. Other than that, do whatever you want. They, right. just, they just didn't care what we did. They figured we'd take care of ourselves. Right. And surprisingly, the French did the same thing. They, Oh, really? He said, as long as you stay about 20,000 feet, we'll do whatever you want. Yeah. So they were very cooperative during Desert Storm. And we kind of, kind of surprised us after the, you know, the F-111 thing when we bombed uh, um, Libya. And the French wouldn't let us fly over their airspace. Right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. Led that, to a that great got a Sam lot of Kin- bad press here. Yeah, but it led to a great Sam Kinison bit. <laughs> 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 oh god bless him sam he was one of my heroes oh he was a great guy <laughs> he was a funny guy anyway yeah uh, and original you told me several times the smell yeah inside the cabin inside the cockpit of the v-52 everybody that gets in one for the first time will tell you it's a smell they've never smelled anywhere else it's it's not an un, it's not a stink all right it's it's 50 years of flight lunches, puke, jet fuel, hydraulic fluid, uh, um, urine. Uh, it's just all of this combines to make the smell. That's a B-52 smell. It's, it's not it's not unpleasant. It's it's just characteristic. It, yeah, and it's it's very unique. You've never smelled it before. Right. You know. I came to think of it, you know, you know how we do with smells. They they trigger things. In us, yes, right? they do. And you smell them. You 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 remember smells for long, long, long after you smell. They're probably the most persistent memories. Yeah. In your brain, I remember when I was probably three. There was a rubber mattress that caught on fire in our garage, and to this day. If I smell that particular smell, I remember that from that from that time back in sure. the nineteen fifties. It's still in there, yeah. still embedded in my little brain. Oh yeah, so I came to think then. of that buff smell, that B fifty two smell, as a good thing. So it's, it's, it's a pleasant because when I would you smell it, I, I was with, about to fly. Right, you know, and right. I'd stick my head up the hatch to after doing my walk around outside, and I'd stick my head up the hatch, and that smells. A good thing. You're home. We're, we're going to go. You're home. Yeah. We're ready to work. Yeah. Right. So maybe that's why I didn't think it stunk. But most people don't like hold their nose and go, oh, my God, that's terrible. It's just different. Right. I, yeah, there's nothing quite like it. You know, I mentioned the urinal or it was on the lower deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you took the defense instructor and kicked him out of his seat, and he sat right at the top of the ladder between the decks. Mm-hmm. If you kicked him out of his seat and removed the seat cushions, you would eventually come to a toilet seat. Yeah. And under there, if the crew chief remembered, there's a plastic bag hanging underneath it. And that was the facility. Right. So there was an unwritten rule that for sorties under 12 hours, put a cork in it. Because everybody's going to suffer if you use that. Don't thing. shit on this airplane yeah. unless it's absolutely and, necessary. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons why the B-52 was the very last airplane to get female crew members. Because there, there was zero there's privacy. No accommodation. Yeah. And when you sat, if you had to sit and use that thing... Your left shoulder is against the ejection seat for the electronic countermeasures operator. And if you reached out here, 
you could grab the gunner's left elbow. So you, this is how you're going to take Rather a crap. You're going to cramp quarters. Yeah, yeah. So they right. obviously have made some accommodation now because they they've had all female crews a, a couple of times. So, right. But um, it was the last plane in the inventory to get female crew members, and I think that was a big part of it. Well, if they're all female, doesn't matter. Right. That doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> but yeah, the, it's a terribly uncomfortable airplane. Crew right. comfort's just not a consideration. That great big old airplane. The only place you can stand straight up is on that ladder. The whole airplane. Yeah. The it's whole pressurized compartment, any, yeah. Not any headroom. No, when you got to the top of the ladder, you had to bend at the waist and, and you know, walk that way up to the flight deck where the pilot seats were. Mm-hmm. Right at the top of the ladder, facing backwards, was the electronic countermeasures and the gunner, tail gunner's seat. So if you went forward, you eventually got to the flight deck where the pilot's were, but you couldn't stand up in that, that walkway. Right. And then the temperature was never right. It was always too hot or too cold. Uh, the noise level was obscene. Uh, oh, I can imagine. We, we had a flight dock got... measure the measure the noise inside navigator's ear cups inside the helmet at a hundred decibels. Oh my Just, God! So another common thing B fifty two crew members have is hearing loss. So do you communicate with the other crew members over the radio? Interphone. Yes. You yeah. have to use you, you can, There's no acoustic no. ability to no to communicate. You, if if the... I leaned over and if, if the, if the <clears throat> copilot and I both took our helmets off. If I leaned over and yelled right in his ear from two inches, he could hear me. The, uh, the noise well, obviously, was just, you've got to yeah. have some kind of internal comm system. So, right. Yeah, so wow. I, I, I got to where I flew with earplugs inside the earphones to try to minimize the hearing damage because it's just it was just awful. Oh, God, I guess it is. Gonna... Yeah, we used to joke that the plane was obviously designed as a drone and the, the crew was an afterthought. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed like they put no effort into crew comfort at all. Right. You know, it's, it's not a passenger airplane. So everybody in here has got duties to perform. So right. we don't really care about Were the comfort. seats ergonomic in any? Yeah, they were. The seats were surprisingly comfortable, I thought. The ejection seats were. Now, there was four other interphone and oxygen stations besides the ejection seats for instructors to sit in or, or extra people to sit in. None of those were comfortable at all. Right. They just there's a, a cushion on top of something hard metal, you know. But I thought these how many personnel could you actually get into a B fifty two? You could get you could get eleven, if I remember. If you shared one of the oxygen interphone stations, it's. But you could get ten, in there, and everybody would have an interphone and oxygen panel. Or, was think, that normal? At the uh, schoolhouse when I was a co-pilot, that was very common. Because in those days, we trained as a crew at the schoolhouse. All six of you were going and undergoing training together. And when we finished the training, we all moved together and became right. a crew at the new base. Um, so it was more common for six people to be on the airplane. Yeah, the normal basic crew was six. Uh, uh, and then if somebody, you know, right. for instance... Uh, the, the Training considerations. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, the co-pilot went non-current. It hasn't made a landing in enough time. And his crew commander's not an instructor pilot. Well, now we got to bring an instructor pilot with to watch this guy land right. and, and say, okay, you can land again, you know. So it was uncommon to to not have at least one extra person on the airplane. It right. seemed like it was very kind of seven or eight. So seven or eight was more normal than six. Right, yeah. Right. But Especially but, in peacetime. But in, in, in wartime, there would probably be six people on six. the airplane. Six. When Desert Storm came... Uh, they came and said, hard crews fly combat, the six of you. That's it. Right. No extras on board. Right. So they made some exceptions, of course, later on, but that was the initial thing. So, right. Yeah, I wanna, I think you said 
towards the beginning of this that that I flew combat and I did not fly combat in Desert Storm. Oh, my unit did. Your unit did, right. but you personally did. Now not. that was during that time I was in that that non-nuclear planning thing. I didn't have my own crew, so instead I right. planned missions, and briefed them, right, debriefed them. You know, so were you over there or were you in England? I was in England, but our guys flew a round trip mission. Every mission was all the way to Iraq and back. The shortest missions were 17 hours. And some of them were 24 hours. Wow. After the after the uh, the Iraqis got that lucky miss hit with a Scud missile, killed 10 or 12 Air Force people. Um, what did they hit with the Scud? Hit a barracks, if I remember right. Oh, it was a ground it, it, attack. It, yeah, it was a, a right. Scud missile, a ground-to-ground missile. Right. Uh, and it was, it was basically unaimed, so it just got lucky. Yeah, that's the, a Scud was basically a V2, wasn't it? Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, and they got lucky, and they killed a dozen or so. I think they hit a barracks. <clears throat> After that, we, we sometimes flew uh, anti-scud missions where they would load the plane up with those those cluster bomb units, right. and they'd orbit over Saudi Arabia. And when the satellite would detect a scud launch, they'd download the lat long to the bomber, and he'd go in there and just try to pay him back, show him any right. free to launch one. You know, right. Those missions were 24 hours long because they're, because they're the, loitering. Because they're know. orbiting, yeah. right. So another thing to... Loitering, the buff's been very useful in Afghanistan because of that. They can loiter for hours and hours and hours. And now, of course, they drop all, not all, but a lot of smart weapons and everything that I never fired. Uh, yeah. The unit I was in for most years, we were the conventional bombing specialists for the command. Mm-hmm. That's why we deployed for Desert Storm. No other unit right. deployed. They, they sent crews TDY to those locations. Right. We picked up and moved. In other words, you relocated for the duration of the right. of the conflict. About a third of our squadron went to the the three other bases that were going to be operating B fifty twos in the Middle East, and then other wings sent people there, and then our guys helped get them all up to speed on the conventional bombing thing. This was a plan, Sackhead. There's a guys up in Maine. They specialized in um, harpoon anti ship missiles. Everybody at all the other bases got the ground school in it. Those guys regularly, routinely practiced with them. The idea being mm-hmm. that now we can send crews up to augment them if a protracted thing happens. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much how we did Desert Storms. Was Our unit was the conventional bombing bunch. And so they took about a third of our squadron, spread them out. And then it was actually two days after uh, the air war started that we were told to deploy. When the air war started, I was in California um, delivering a B-52. Air for, um, every B-52 is different from every other B-52. There's no two exactly alike. And so, SAC. Why would that be? I guess because the repairs and that that uh, and they're just they're large and complicated organisms. Um, Mm -hmm. Just like no two people are exactly alike. We all have the same organs, but we're not exactly alike. It's the same thing. Plus stuff that you know, you know. When I first got into B fifty twos, we're we're just at the end of carrying a a weapon called an AGM twenty eight Hound Dog, is the original cruise missile. Right. By today's standards, grossly inaccurate thing. Essentially, we carried a little airplane under each wing. Well, when those were decommissioned right after I became a co-pilot, um, they, they capped off the fuel lines and electric lines, but they didn't remove all the wiring. They didn't remove all the plumbing. So Just didn't bother. There's do. thousands of pounds of unused plumbing and wiring on every airplane. <laughs> um, yeah, There's no way to calculate the center of gravity on it. Uh, up at Tinker Air Force Base, uh, they have one of the world's largest buildings up there where, where B-52s go to get big fixes done on them. And every time we would go there, they would literally hang the thing from the ceiling to find out what the center of gravity was. They'd update the Because it gravity. couldn't be calculated. Couldn't be calculated, no. Because had, had <laughs> each one's just different. 
right. So as Desert Storm was approaching, SAC was shuffling airplanes around to get the airframes they wanted to the places they wanted them. And so uh, uh, I took a crew to, to uh, California, to the schoolhouse base of Castle, and dropped the bomber off, and I don't know where it was going to go eventually. Uh, but I was in my hotel room that night when uh, the radar navigator came running in and said, turn on the news, turn on the news, they've started. So wow. I wasn't home when the air war started. And uh, I was stunned when I landed at Memphis on the airliner uh, to look at all the security there. Cause, you know, it just hadn't been like that before. And all of a sudden there's cops everywhere and you can't go anywhere and they're funneling everybody, you know. It was, it was just surprising to see all that. Interesting. Yeah. So, when was uh, when was the end of SAC? That had to have been was, after Berlin Wall. I want to say ninety three. So, um, so Berlin Wall was eighty nine. Right. It was Soviet after Desert Storm, Union which was, was ninety one. Soviet Union was ninety. Right. Right. So Desert Storm's ninety one, and SAC operated Desert Storm B fifty two. Right. So couple of years after that Soviet Union was dissolved the ostensible global threat level was reduced to the point where I guess the expense couldn't be justified any longer you know it is after every war the United States decides we don't need a military anymore the Cold War is no different right Right. Uh, we got back from Desert Storm in 91 by the end by December of 91 the squadron that I had been a part of since 1983 was gone decommissioned. Yeah. They moved the unit number to an airlift number. We were the 97th bomb wing. The unit up at Altus became the 97th airlift wing. So they tried to move some of the tradition there. But um, all of our, in pursuit of a, of a treaty with the Russians, they took all our G-model bombers and broke them up into pieces. Um, <coughs> it's it's the criminal. Oh, God. It was criminal. It was, it was literally heartbreaking. For me, for all of all oh, of I'm, us, I'm right? sure just, it was. You know, God, uh, to see These those things are such beautiful objects that work so well. It's kind of like Obama's. What did he call that thing where they uh, cash for clunkers? Yeah, yeah. Where they buy your Corvette and pour concrete yeah. into the engine plot. Yeah, it, it's hard to explain to somebody that, that hasn't <laughs> that hasn't been intimate with a right. with a combat airplane. But you know, they had a B fifty two on display out here at Shepard Air Force Base, static display. Those things actually belonged, any Air Force static display you see belongs to the Air Force Museum. Right? And right. the Air Force Museum has a team where regularly inspect those to make sure they're still safe and everything. And they one time they inspected that one up there and decided it was corroded beyond repair. Yeah. Um, and so the one that sits out there now is a replacement. The one that was there was a D model, a tall tail. Well, they came along with one of those big machines used to rip apart buildings because how else are you going to tear apart a B-52? But you know the big things with big claws and stuff. Right. And they tore that thing into pieces in place there. I could hardly drive by there. Oh, God. It was like, it was, it was emotionally like looking at a torn up human body to me. Just chunks of this yeah, beautiful and, airplane. Yeah, and you're looking at metal that has never seen the light of day, and now it's laid naked out in the sun out there. It was just, it was depressing to me. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I it, it surprised me, kind of, but it was right. an emotional thing to see that. And now they've replaced it, though, with a G model, which is, you know, at least a model that I've flown. And I may have flown that airframe. I don't know. I never kept a logbook. Like, I, I really, really regret that. Right. I'd like to see a picture of one and go look up my book and go, yeah, I did fly that one, you know. Right. But I, I was too lazy. 
But <laughs> didn't back know your, it would be an issue. Yeah. But yeah, back to your question. As soon as Desert Storm was done, Congress began another brace realignment and closing thing. And SAC was the first victims. Right? Wow. Um, we had a chief of staff of the Air Force named General McPeak who uh, <laughs> oversaw and, and the... so LeMay was gone by now. When did, he, when did, when did, did LeMay die? die? I don't know. I don't remember 86 anymore. or something like that? 90, I think. Was it 90? You looked that up. You know, till the very end, he was he was held in very high esteem. People were people, military people were scared to death of him when he was before he died. Because you know? he, <laughs> he was connected. He, he, he knew everybody that had been president since since Roosevelt personally. Yeah, you know, he remained immensely powerful. Uh, and and in SAC, his word was still law. Uh, there was a rumor went around there that uh, we had a sink SAC who was going to make us wear blue flight suits. And the, the story I heard is, is when uh, LeMay became aware of that, and of course he'd been retired for decades, he picked up the phone and called and said, you're not doing that, and we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you were in green flight suits. Yeah. And he thought blue was too make, Air Force-like. Make, too make you look like a gas like station or... attendant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't look military in that. Right, yeah. yeah he was, but he just, despite being retired... He remained very, very influential. He, he remained uh, in charge of SAC. My, one of the best <laughs> wing commanders I ever worked for, he had a, if you sat in front of the wing commander's desk and looked at him, uh, behind him and above his head, he had this beautifully hand-lettered sign in Gothic lettering, and it said, in the beginning there was courtesy LeMay, and he created God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's, oh, that's pretty much how we felt about him in the, right. in the command. He was a legendary oh. guy, you know. Oh, he's just, yeah, he's one of those people that shaped a lot of oh. policy and a lot of lives and a lot of deaths. and a, Yeah. Yeah, historic a guy, figure, guy who understood how to gigantic use gigantic men. Yeah, yeah, he flew. Yeah. You know, he began flying way back right after World War One, and you know, flew up into the jet age, and you know, he's he he that. personally was in the air for fifty years. Yeah, right? yeah, what a guy! He was just one of those historical characters, you know, right. just a giant. Yeah. No, but yeah, Sack was finally. I think the assassination was complete, probably by. See, I moved to Texas in 92. So I think 93 was the year it officially went away, if I remember right. right. Um, and I could, if we could drive to northeast Arkansas, I could take you to within 10 feet of where I was standing the day the Cold War ended. Right. Because uh, I had been gone for a week, temporary duty for a week. Came back on Friday, and the squadron commander says, uh, congratulations, uh, you've been chosen to ramrod the fundraising car wash in the parking lot at the BX tomorrow. And I said, why me? Because you weren't here to defend yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So I'll stand that part, and of course, slave labor was provided by the guys on alert. Always had a ready labor force. Mm -hmm. And they're out there washing cars, uh, and when you're on alert, you're carried around a little FM radio receiver with you. So it was just a receiver, not a transmitter. And when that thing went off, everybody would freeze because you had to listen to what it's going to say. Right? Well, we're out there washing cars. It's probably 1 p.m., something like that. And the alert radios go off. And somebody comes up and says, stand by for a message from SyncSack. And I don't remember who SyncSack was anymore at the time. But 
He comes on and essentially says, he gives about a three-minute speech, but it ends with, uncock your nuclear bombers by uh, 2100 Central Time and go home. And I had this go sensation of stand on the edge of a cliff, you know. The younger guys all cheered. All of us older yeah. guys went, oh, shit. What just happened? Yeah, nothing good's going to happen now, you know. <laughs> and we weren't wrong. Things changed at that instant. I, I uh-huh. could take you to within... 10 feet of it, you know, where I was standing, because it was that earth-shattering. It was like right. where I was when Kennedy was assassinated or something right. like that, because the world I'd grown up ended right there, just suddenly, yeah. you know. Um, Chopped yeah. off at the knees. Just. Yeah. And in a lot of our opinion, uh, the Air Force lost a lot of its way at that moment. Mm-hmm. Got to be careful what I say. I work for the Air Force still. Right. Well, when did you actually separate? I retired in 94. Because of that drawdown so of the bombers. So you've been retired for 25 years. Yep. The drawdown of those right. bombers meant I had to spend my last two years at Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, mm-hmm. working in the command post there. And uh, I had to be happy with that because that same chief of staff, who I shall not mention again, right. uh, had, had put out an edict that said if you have a certain level of flying experience and your base closes, you're never going to fly again. So... At the end, the 340th Bomb Squadron... How does that make any sense? It doesn't. What was the purpose? He said we had too many pilots. He just wanted you off the payroll, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way he was going to thin it out was that, because there was was a list of like 15 bases that are going to close in the next two years. So this is going to get a lot of pilots out, at least off the the flight deck. So I had other specialties and non-flying specialties, and I was trying to get up to Minot, which was one of the last two B-52 bases. Um, the wing commander, if there was a guy I'd known years earlier, and I called him up and he said, if you can get here, I'll put you on instructor orders when your feet touch down. But you got to get here against this thing from the chief of staff. So uh, far from being excess pilots, Barksdale in Louisiana, which is the other B-52 base now, um, they were so desperate for ex- experienced instructor pilots that they were paying out of their funds to have me and the squadron commander rotate down there a week at a time each. And they were paying for that. And the squadron commander and I were the last, we were it for the 340th bomb squadron. And uh, he said, when you're home, you got to go into the office and, and uh, we got to keep up the illusion that there's a squadron there. So I was, I was home one day and the, the phone rang and I answered it and I said, uh, 340th bomb squadron, Captain Davidson. And it's this one star general. Uh, he asked for Colonel Sullivan, who's my boss. I said, he's TDY, sir, can I help you? And he said, who are you again? And I said, Captain Davison. And he says, yeah, you'll do. You and Sullivan are going to cease and desist this crap right now. You're going to take the next assignment we send you. You're going to be grateful you're getting pensions at all. Am I clear? <laughs> Words to that effect. Oh, yeah. So after I hung up, I thought, I'll bet that chief of staff himself pissed at that guy's cornflakes to be that angry or some low-ranking guy like me, you know? Yeah. So I had to call Colonel Sullivan and tell him to enjoy his last ride because... Were screwed, and that's when I knew I'd had my last ride. It was down there at Barksdale. They found it necessary to make a phone call like that. Yeah, I guess we were pissing off people, you know. What a deal, God Almighty! So I had to go to Dias, and yeah. I took solace in the fact that at least I'm working the command post and talking to airplanes and doing operational things because I knew guys, thousands of instructors that had to retrain as a finance officer or something. Just kill me. Yeah. Just, just shoot oh, me in God. the head. You know? For a pilot to do that. Oh, that's, oh God. You know. 
How disgraceful. Yeah. So I had to work hard. They had just enough officers to keep that place open, uh, that command post of Dias. And so for the last two years, nobody got any leave. We worked six 12-hour shifts in a row, and then we'd get 24 hours off. And we'd start it again. Because the command post had a higher level of cryptography in it that required the presence of a commissioned officer 24-7. So we had to man it, period. And we had just enough people to do it. So it was, uh, it was like I say, I, I had to just be satisfied it wasn't finance or civil engineering or mm -hmm. something, you know. Well, and since then, uh, what have you been doing? I, you're you're an instructor at yeah, yeah. Shepherd right now. I am. Yeah, the, the uh, I applied to do anything when I retired because no surprise, uh, it was pretty hard to get hired when you're forty. What was I forty two years old? I got a twenty year old history degree, and I've been flying bombers. What civilian job is right? You know, yeah, besides the airlines, which I had no interest in at all. Um, so I found well, out. I guess they might have been interested in the guy that had flown heavies, right? Is that if that I had true? tried to make myself attractive to them? Yeah, I would have hireable, but I just not interested in that job at all. Right. You know, watching a computer fly airplanes, I, I don't want to do that. Right. So, but I had my daughter was just five. I had mouths to feed. So I, I I found out that despite the jokes we told each other for twenty years, McDonald's really isn't hiring me. Because <laughs> that was what we'd always say. You don't like this? McDonald's is hiring you. Know? So, right. But no, they're not hiring me. Uh, so I finally got hired to operate a cold reduction steel mill by Hunco Steel Company. And when I asked the hiring guy, why me? I don't know anything about steel. And you had 250 applicants for 15 jobs. And he said, you don't know how a steel mill runs, do you? I said, no. He said, it's run with a joystick, like an airplane. That's why we hired you. There's somebody <laughs> who knows how to operate. And he was kind of right. You know? I spent just, just under a year working there, worst job I ever had. Most dangerous job, way more dangerous. Way more combat, dangerous than flying combat airplanes. Around. Oh God, yes, thousand ways to get killed in a steel mill. Um, and then I got a phone call. I'd, I'd worked thirteen straight twelve-hour shifts, and I got I was home for the first time in two weeks. I got a phone call offering me a job as a contractor at Shepard, teaching in the classroom at pilot training, just academics. Didn't have any simulators here at the time. Uh, Going to pay me three times as much and work in air-conditioned classrooms, and I said. Let me think about it. Okay, I'll go. You know? <laughs> um, so I was a contractor for the Air Force for 15 years. Um, then under the Obama administration, the, the government unilaterally canceled the contract and told us if we wanted to keep our jobs, we could apply to be government employees. So the job shifted from contract to government employee. Those of us who could afford to do so quit. None of us wanted to do this. Some of us who had been at the company for 15 years took a huge pay cut to do this. Um, but the job is too good, and, and by then, by 2010, we had all these flight simulators out here, new, you know, new airplane, the T-6, mm -hmm. that none of us had ever flown. Um, uh, a really great flight simulator, and so the job expanded out of the classroom and into the simulators, too. So it got more interesting. Yeah, it did, a lot more interesting. And so that's what I've been doing there. So that means I joined the Air Force when I was 17. Um, I'm 67 now. I've been away from the Air Force for about one year. And uh, Retiring was one of the more terrifying things I ever did. Well, I'll bet. I was scared I'll for bet. six months. I just didn't. I didn't know how to be a civilian. I didn't. No. No. I mean, your whole adult life had been spent. Yeah. Yeah. It was, this, it was uh, terribly frightening for me. And under I did, this structure. You know. And I was unemployed for months cause I, when I found out how unhirable I was. And that, literally, McDonald's wasn't interested. They, they want to hire a 17-year-old kid, and if he quits sure. after two shifts, they don't, they're not out of anything. Right. 
but a guy in his 40s is, is going to leave. There's a 100% chance. Right. He's not going to stay here. He's not interested in your assistant manager position. No. He's I would have taken it because I needed a job, right. but no, I'm not going to stay there. Right. You know? So I, that, was, that was a pretty depressing time for me. I mean, yeah. How to work and uh, history degree. You know, what good that does. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I have a friend who's an aerodynamic. I have a number of friends who are aero engineers. There's a lot of pilots who did that in, in college. He gave me my two favorite jokes about it. He said, uh, how do you make the history major's car more aerodynamic? I said, I don't know. I'll bite. Take that Pizza Hut sign off the top. <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you get the history major off your front step? I don't know. Pay for the pizza. Pay for the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I found out is yeah, pretty, pretty much, much true. Pretty much the case. Yeah. Oh, I'd majored in history because I found it easy. Because to me, college was just stood between me and Patrick. That's its sole function. Right. When did you become a military history buff? Because oh, when you, I was, are, you are an expert in that field, uh, and I don't know if you time I was considered an expert, eight. but you it's been your an interest of yours for, for a long, long time, and you know quite a bit about all of that stuff, about military history. And it's, I got I, interested when I was five or six years old. And when other kids were reading Dr. Seuss, I was reading history books. I didn't read a fiction book for my own pleasure until I was in my 20s. And that was a Louis L'Amour Western. Mm-hmm. Um, until then, the only fiction I'd ever read was assigned in school, you know, that I had to read. Right. Um, so this just always interested me, and I can't explain it other than the occasional war story from my dad who fought in World War II. He was in the 10th Armored Division, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, so he was under Patton. He was, he was uh, surrounded in Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge, was wounded, and you know, saw the whole thing from the ground, and right. he didn't tell a lot of stories. Our dads might have known each other. It's you know? entirely possible. He was it's in Bastogne, wasn't he? Yes, he yeah. was. He yeah. spent Christmas Eve in Bastogne. Yeah. He so. was the mess officer in, uh, mess sergeant uh, in headquarters company. And so your dad stopped in to eat. My dad fed him. May have. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can read a number of history books before you find out that the 10th Armored was there in Bastogne. Right. The books also want to talk about 101st Airborne. But the 10th Armored was sent up there because they knew the attack was coming, and the, the airborne guys only had firearms, essentially. Yeah. So they, the 10th Armored was the nearest heavy unit, and Patton was told to detach it and send it up there. Right. He got there just in time to get surrounded in Bestone. <laughs> <laughs> and he always said that wasn't the toughest part of the war, as far as he was concerned. He says it got tougher when we crossed the Rhine, because now the right. Germans are fighting on home territory. It meant more to them. Right. Right. This is in France. We just kind of raced across the... He says, most days, we would drive till somebody shot at us. And then we'd back up, because it's in armor on a half track. And we'd back up and let the tanks, the artillery, the planes take care of it. And when they dealt with it, we drove till somebody shot at us. So she used to tell me the front line was right there on my front bumper. That was the <laughs> front line of the war. And so <laughs> France was mostly just driving, driving, driving. It just wasn't a lot of shooting right. that he saw. Just a transit. Yeah. Right. Um, but after he crossed, the, he crossed the bridge at Remagen before it collapsed. Crossed it under air attack, as a matter of fact. That's what he said. He saw the first jets taking, attacking yeah, that They bridge. had them in the air in 44, didn't they? Yep. He said they'd been told about them. So they knew what they were. Right. They saw them and heard them. But they said they were pretty surprised how fast they were. They found out that they, their 50 caliber machine guns couldn't traverse fast enough to track them. So they just had to put rounds out in front of them, what pilots call like a deflection shot. Leading a duck. Right. Right. 
<laughs> so I think maybe that's why I got interested in all this. Was, right. Was, you know, he was a drafty. It's not like I come from a military family. But right. I just remember, I don't, I couldn't tell you when it started, but I always had the sensation that being in the military is important, has meaning. Right. And, and, I, and I never, I never it lost It certainly that. has. Throughout history, has it not? Yeah. There's a reason why it's a history is second a oldest profession. History is just a succession of military activities. Yep. In fact. And in Western worlds, we after the end of each one, we think it's, it's never going to happen again, and we defund the military. And, uh, yeah. And sure enough, we end up being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody knows anything about history surprised by it. Right, right. Exactly. Because there's always somebody out there that wants your stuff and doesn't want to pay for it. Right. We probably droned on long enough. Uh, I've been trying to get you to write a book about this shit for about ten years, and I'm serious. It'll sell, and you're going to find out. You're going to find out. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Thanks for being my buddy. Hey, yeah. Thank and, you uh, for uh, training me, and, saving my uh, life. Yeah, we we've gotten we talked about Scott on the on the podcast with Dr. Manji and uh, doesn't miss a workout. Just amazing what this shit will do for you. Thank you guys for watching us on Starting Strength Radio. Hope this has been enjoyable to you as it has for me. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>